Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com None of these holidays occur in a vacuum. Why don't you tell us the story of how the holiday came to be, where did it originate from, and, and w- what was your feeling about the, the, how long it took to be so designated? Well, it was a, uh, an effort that took about 15 years, but uh, it was uh, thought about, I think, uh, on Martin's first birthday after this assassination, which would have been January 1969. At that time, the holiday uh, legislation was introduced by John Conyers, Congressman Conyers, and each year succeeding, each succeeding year, he introduced it. And then um, after we were involved in a coalition, and I was a part of that as co-chair for full employment, in which we were able to actually mobilize enough people to pass legislation, in 1978, they brought about a, a bill called the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Balanced Growth Act. 1979, I said to John Conyers, it's time now for the holiday bill to be brought to the floor. And, uh, of course, he, he did bring it to the floor and uh, had thought he had enough votes for, to pass it. This is in 78? Uh, 79. Mm-hmm. And uh, it uh, did not pass, unfortunately. It lost by five votes. It had the votes, but they were not there that day. You know how Congress people are out uh, very often. Ten ladies had gone overseas, uh, I think, to Cambodia. And uh, I'm sure you had the five votes in that group, and then many others were absent. Uh, at that point, it didn't seem feasible to bring it up again that year. Well, uh, we had an election in 1980, and uh, things changed. We also mobilized uh, for another effort, a large coalition, which was the March on Washington in 83. And uh, in that process, we realized that 
uh, we needed a victory, and the, the obvious one uh, to come out of the uh, 20th anniversary mobilization with was the holiday. So we focused on that as our legislative priority, although we had identified 12 other legislative priorities in the areas of jobs, peace, and freedom. And this bill was actually passed uh, shortly after the uh, August uh, 27th uh, date. And I think uh, having passed that legislation, uh, none of us had uh, perhaps thought it would come in that, that span of time, in that four-year period. Uh, but because there, wa- there were many people across the country, the mobilization brought out 500,000 people, and we also had 700 and some over 700 groups, uh, organizations who were part of that coalition. So the networking does does uh, prove effective, and we knew that we could uh, we could network and get this legislation passed. And that's really what happened. What caused it to pass when the people in this country feel strong enough about uh, uh, legislation or an issue. Uh, they tend to express their feelings uh, through the process of legislation if there is legislation in place. And once the bill was passed, there was a mechanism set up to establish the first celebration, and that is the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Federal Holiday Commission, of which you were chairperson. What is that and what did it do? Well, it was important to have a commission and uh, after the holiday because we felt that people would be celebrating it in various ways, and we wanted to uh, make sure that it was celebrated in an appropriate manner that was befitting the man and his 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 meaning, uh, his philosophy of nonviolence, and so on. So uh, the commission was set up at our request. Uh, by a uh, as a result of visiting a bipartisan commission a committee of the congress and uh, the commission although uh, limits itself to government uh, people but it is to encourage other individuals to celebrate as well we have a 31 member commission and uh, at the federal level uh, we have been planning the activities in terms of what I say, recommending uh, activities that we think should be um, held at this time and leading up to the time of the birthday. Uh, we have we organized ourselves into 18 committees, education, labor, uh, civil and human rights, youth. Uh, we felt that a religious committee, we felt that uh, uh, every sector of society uh, should get involved and have some official uh, commemorative uh, uh, celebrations, and there should be official celebrations by every unit of government. That's really what the legislation calls for. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, May 26th, 2017. So I have been told. <clears throat> this is our ninth study session on the autobiography of the late Mrs. Coretta Scott King. My life, my love, my legacy, as told to Reverend Dr. Barbara Reynolds. Uh, we're picking up. We're right like the final. If you got a hard copy book, we're probably on like the last 10 pages or so of chapter 20, uh, where she's finishing up some of the details 
on finally getting uh, the King holiday established as a federal holiday. Uh, the interview uh, that you heard, that was uh, Mrs. King. Uh, she was speaking with C-SPAN. That was right at the end of the 1980s. I think the, at that time, the federal, the King holiday had only been uh, in existence as a federal holiday uh, for about two or three years at that point. Uh, but without further ado, we will get started. Uh, this should be our second to last session. So she, we should only have one more after this week. Uh, and then we will wrap things up so people can be thinking of uh, next book they would like to read after we get done with this project. With that, our study session, first audio segment, Context of White Supremacy, Coretta Scott King, My Life, My Love, My Legacy, audio segment number one. The King holiday had been established, and the King Center had evolved from a few filing cabinets in my bedroom to a staff of more than 60, welcoming about 2.5 million visitors every year. But I felt the urgent need to keep adding thunder to the left to keep the voice, vision, and values of a humane, peace-seeking society at the top of the national agenda. The movement had to hold on to the social, economic, and political gains we had won while continuing to break through closed doors and glass ceilings. As Martin had used sermons and books to challenge our political leaders and institutions, I used speeches, forums at the King Center, and hundreds of syndicated columns and television commentaries on CNN to continue presenting an alternative vision of what an equitable and just society should look like. I saw the media as a valuable tool, one that allowed the voiceless to have a role in participatory democracy. Without the media coverage of the marches and bloodshed of the movement, we would not have touched the hearts of good people across the nation. The Reagan administration, however, thought otherwise. It was so bothered by my critique of national and international affairs that I was banned from appearing on Voice of America, the official external broadcast organization of the United States, and from traveling on any government-sponsored trips as a representative of the United States. I was thought of more as an enemy of the state than a public servant. I had worked my entire life to make the dispossessed full participants in the American dream. The Reagan Cole shoulder was just a replay of how I ended up on President Richard Nixon's unofficial list of enemies. Of course, I am not naive. If the Reagan administration had loved me, that would have meant I was not doing my job, that I had failed in my task of as the great journalist Finley Peter Dunn wrote, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. During the Reagan years, I had much to say about the administration's painfully regressive policies, which cut survival funding for the working poor and their families. In America in 1989, one child out of every four was living in poverty, and fully half of all African American children were living in poverty. Yet instead of increasing funds to fight hunger and homelessness or increasing access to health care, Reagan imposed draconian cuts on subsidies for the poor. In fact, he was excoriated for going so far as to advocate cutting school lunch budgets and allowing ketchup and other condiments to count as vegetables. And while subsidies for survival necessities such as school lunches were on the chopping block, the Pentagon was awash in hefty increases. One report in the Detroit Free Press showed that military spending had increased by $164 billion, while programs for the poor were cut by $50 billion. 
In 1990, President George H.W. Bush chose to react to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait with bombs rather than with sanctions and diplomacy. That decision, called Operation Desert Storm, set the stage for a full-blown oil war disaster in Iraq a decade later, during the presidency of Bush's son, George W. Bush, under the false premise that Iraq held weapons of mass destruction. The younger Bush led the United States into a war that resulted in thousands of lives lost unnecessarily and billions drained from our domestic economy. During the Reagan-Bush years, I used my voice to push for a new war on poverty instead of a continued war on the poor. I was not just pleading the case for welfare, I was still arguing for a no-nonsense national commitment to full employment, a job at a decent wage for everyone who was able and capable of working. Such a policy would also include a higher minimum wage, a national health care system, and an expansion of public works. In the private sector, governmental incentives could encourage corporations and unions to create job training and child care opportunities in depressed communities so that mothers would not have to put their children at risk in order to work and support their families. Later, during the Clinton administration, I did not quiet my call for a much-targeted war on poverty, nor did I stop advocating for an end to supply-side trickle-down economic policies which had resulted in double-digit joblessness and left one out of five black workers unemployed. While President Clinton did not support our agenda to the letter, he did bring about major improvements over the Reagan and Bush years. Studies show that 7.7 million people were lifted out of poverty during Clinton's term, compared to only 77,000 during the Reagan years. President Clinton's economic legacy included a balanced budget and the creation of 22.7 million jobs, which dramatically decreased joblessness among people of color. According to the Department of Commerce, from 1992 to 2000, unemployment fell to 7.6% from 14.2% for African Americans and to 5.7% from 11.6% for Hispanics. I appreciated the job growth under Clinton's administration, although I was very disappointed about the Three Strikes, You're Out 1994 crime bill, which Clinton signed into law and which sent so many African-American men to spend most of their lives in jail. I battled the government on many other fronts. Just as Martin and I had pushed to end the Vietnam War, so I tried to bring the same passion to my outcry against the rush to war in the Gulf and challenge the warmongering maneuvers of President George H.W. Bush, which unfortunately escalated into disaster under his son. As early as August 1990, I was pleading with the administration of George H.W. Bush to choose diplomatic options to resolve conflicts in the Gulf. A war would benefit only the oil companies and arms dealers, I warned, leaving in its wake many thousands of widows and heartbroken children, financial disaster for U.S. taxpayers, and increasing terrorist retaliation against the United States. Unfortunately, just as Martin was demonized for speaking out against the Vietnam War, I was harshly criticized, sometimes by other civil rights leaders, for advocating caution, compromise, and diplomacy instead of rushing full steam ahead into war. In my heart, I have always been patriotic. I love my country, 
the land for which so many of my fellow citizens sacrificed our blood on battlefields both here and abroad. I do not mean to say that the United States should not have a strong defense. I advocate driving down a different road to get there. True homeland security ought to be more about providing health care for every citizen, more about protecting civil liberties, more about protection of pension assets for retired people, more about gun control and about protecting Americans against domestic hate crimes, more about feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, and making sure there is quality education for every child and a job at a decent wage for everyone who wants and needs one. This is how we make our country safe and secure for all citizens. I will never stop sounding off about justice for all, regardless of the steps backward our country might be making. I will fight on and await the zeitgeist. There is something about the zeitgeist, the spirit of the time. Martin used to preach about this. The zeitgeist pushes people from the dullness of yesterday into the bright sunlight of tomorrow. It is a time when all the alarms on the human clock ring. Someday, once again, those alarm bells will ring. 21. Our Children For all that I shared with Martin and all the uplifting work I have done and continue to do, in my life my greatest joy has been my children, Yolanda, Martin, Dexter, and Bernice. I've always felt that nothing I did would mean anything if my children did not know I loved them, and if they were not strengthened by what they saw in me every day. I strove always to be a role model with consistent character and values. In front of them and in private, I sought to live an ethical life. Integration for me was not merely a civil rights issue. It is a soul issue, and this means integrating your personal beliefs into your public life. There should be no difference between public morality and private morality. What I preached publicly, I tried to live out privately in front of my children. Over the decades, my children have achieved so much, but they've also endured their own private struggles, many of which came with the weight of bearing the king name. As a young mother, I remembered the words Rose Kennedy once shared with me, about training the oldest child to help with the youngest, and so passed this style on to my firstborn, Yolanda, whom we called Yoki. Yoki was twelve years old when her father died. While he was alive, she'd already been forced to deal with the king name, which can bring a blessing or a burden, depending on where you are in Atlanta or the world. As early as the mid-1970s, Martin was the most famous man Atlantans had ever known, and it was difficult for our children not to understand the specialness of our name when it was being emblazoned on street signs, schools, T-shirts, and later, the King Center. Yoki was the only one of our children educated in elementary to high school entirely in the public system, as Martin and I had wanted. In the years following Martin's death, I took the other children out of public schools for security reasons. As a child in elementary school, Yoki demonstrated an innate ability to handle her own problems. One day, she came home and told me that she was tired of people asking her, Is your daddy Martin Luther King? So when the teacher stepped out of the classroom, she turned to the other students and said, Look, all I want is to be treated like a normal child. I was pleased with her response. 
to live a normal life as their best selves was all Martin and I ever wanted for our children. Yoki always had strong opinions about what she wanted to do with her life. As a younger child, she, along with our older son Martin and the Abernethy's three children, Wandelin, Donzelay, and Ralph III, were the first to integrate Atlanta's Spring Street Elementary School, and Yoki insisted upon attending Grady High School, the integrated public school her friends went to. In 1972, she graduated with honors from Grady as the best all-round student and went on to the all-women Smith College, where she studied drama and graduated with honors in 1976 with a B.A. in theater and African-American studies. Yolanda started showing her theatrical talent when she was only seven. At nine, she wrote her first play, Riches and Royalty. I was amazed that she even knew how to properly format it. Not only did she write it, but she cast her siblings in it and produced it with costumes all in a day and a half. The plot concerned children of the world bringing gifts to a queen, and she dressed Martin as Chinese, Dexter as African, and Bunny as East Indian. When it was over, my sister Edith, who was the drama teacher at Cheney University of Pennsylvania, quipped, Next time give yourself two weeks instead of a day and a half. But in a child's world, a day is like an eternity. The fun of Yoki's theatrical pursuits continued when she was 11. Her backyard production of Sleeping Beauty came to an early end when the script required six-and-a-half-year-old Dexter to awaken the princess, his sister Bunny, with a kiss on the lips. Understanding her precocious talent, I steered Yoki to a children's drama workshop in Atlanta that had been launched by Walter Roberts and Betty Lubretimus, the parents of the famous actress Julia Roberts, and the actor Eric Roberts. Ironically, while Yolanda was receiving spectacular coaching and I enthusiastically supported the theater, the association drew our family into quite a controversy. Walter cast Yolanda, who was only 16, as a prostitute in the play The Owl and the Pussycat, in which she kissed a white boy. This caused an uproar in Atlanta. Yolanda defended the role, telling me, Mommy, I want to do this because there's nothing in the character with which I can identify. If I can do it well, then I can prove to myself that I can be a better actress. Word got out about the forthcoming production, and soon the church people began calling Daddy King, telling him that if Martin were alive, he would never have allowed such a thing, etc. My mother also got wind of the controversy and was concerned. And my sister Edith told me that if I did not stop Yoki, I'd live to regret it. However, Andy Young advised that, although it was a rough play, we shouldn't stop her. Despite this conflicting chorus, I had already made up my mind. I knew my girl, and I knew she had a right to make a mistake, even though she was Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter. And if she made a mistake, she would learn from it. Sure enough, the media attacked me and the play. Some criticized Yolanda's diction. She was playing the role as a Southern black woman, who had not been tutored in proper English, while, in contrast, the white lead had a polished British accent. Somehow people seemed not to understand that this was just theater. I took on her critics, telling them she is Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King's daughter, and she certainly knows how to talk.
After the run of the play, I was getting ready to go on vacation with my friends Dr. Robert and Lady Green when Yolanda gave me a little note and asked me to open it after I got on the plane. My heart started beating faster. I thought maybe something disastrous had happened. Was she going to tell me she was pregnant? I was nervous to read it. But when I finally did open the envelope, I read a sweet note thanking me for allowing her to express herself and for taking the blows for her. Interestingly, when Yoki was a child and said she was going to be an actress, Martin asked me to tell her not to say that. Well, what's wrong with being an actress? I asked him. Always acutely aware of how critically people judged preachers, he simply said, it's the image. So I think if Martin had lived, she would have had a harder time becoming an actress. After graduating from Smith, Yoki went on to New York University, where she received a master's in fine arts in 1979. She and Betty Shabazz's daughter, Atala Shabazz, went on to found a theater company called Nucleus, which created an original play aimed at teenage children called Stepping into Tomorrow. Yolanda always demonstrated a strong sense of social justice in the projects she took on, even playing Rosa Parks in the NBC TV movie King. She played Dr. Betty Shabazz in the film Death of a Prophet with Morgan Freeman and Medgar Evers' daughter Rena in Ghosts in Mississippi. She also played Judge Esther Green in the hit CBS series Jag. I was proud of her confidence and poise. Seeing her in these roles called to mind a day when she came home from middle school and asked me, Mama, why are Negroes ugly? She told me she had heard this stark, brutal conclusion at school. I reached under the living room table and produced a couple of issues of Ebony magazine. I flipped through the smartly colored pages and pointed out to her the many beautiful women of color. They were fashionably dressed and intelligent. After our conversation, I was happy the case was closed. But was it? The very next day, Yoki came to the conclusion, well, I think white people are ugly. I simply picked up a copy of Ladies' Home Journal and showed her images of beautiful white women also fashionably dressed and intelligent. It took a while for her to understand that there is beauty in all races. Later, I taught her that beauty is more than skin deep, and beauty is as beauty does. One night, when Yoki was at Smith, I got a strange call from her about her appearance. Mother, I want you to tell me the truth about something that's been bothering me she said. Did you and Daddy find me in a garbage can while you were traveling in Korea? What are you talking about? I asked her, baffled. Some kids at school were saying that I look oriental and that I'm Korean and you found me. Now tell me the truth. Yolanda was so serious that I had to convince her that I'd carried her for nine months and that she was a whopping nine-pound, ten-ounce baby. I think many kids must go through this stage of discovery because Bernice also went through a period of thinking she was adopted because she didn't look like anybody else in the family. Finally, I found a picture of me when I was about nine, and I showed it to her. I looked just like Bernice. The older Bernice gets, the more she favors me. As an adult, Yolanda was very instrumental in setting up the arts component at the King Center. She started cultural affairs programming for the center when she was still in graduate school, 
and after graduating from NYU in 1982, she felt she needed to come work at the center as a way of paying her dues, as she used to say. She then established the King Center's Cultural Affairs Department with the help of her Aunt Edith. I had long felt that the King Center was not complete without drama, dance, music, and visual arts as ways of promoting nonviolent social change, and Yoki knew this. On the advice of Edith, she formed an advisory committee with Ossie Davis, Ruby Dee, James Baldwin, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, Maya Angelou, and others. She showcased so much talent. She produced, she acted, she directed a production of James Baldwin's play Amen Corner, and Mr. Baldwin visited the center to see that production. In addition to overseeing the annual entertainment salute to Martin as part of King Holiday Week, starting in 1982, Yoki's department put on King Fest, a summer-long performance and visual arts festival that brought in national artists featuring gospel, jazz, country, bluegrass, rock, and many other kinds of music. It was one of the few popular music festivals in Atlanta during those years. On certain Saturdays and Sundays, June through August, thousands of people would come and enjoy the artists she brought to the center, including War, the Ohio Players, George Howard, Ramsey Clark, Tony Terry, Boys to Men, and Vicki Winans. For each King Fest, the Dream Team, which consisted of friends and associates of Yolanda's in the acting industry, would put on performances— humorous vignettes that dramatized issues of local, national, and international concern. These performances were created using Martin's philosophy and methodology of nonviolence. She also showcased a lot of local talent. King Fest included a kids' day when all the performances and visual art were provided by local children and a nonviolent film festival which taught visual literacy. Through King Fest, Yoki sought not simply to entertain, but also to utilize the universality of the arts to help bring together diverse segments of the community and to offer local artists wares and a health fair with free health screenings. And she inaugurated a King Fest International, where acts from all over the world showcased their culture, music, and food. You know, Martin loved the arts, music in particular. The tragedy of losing their father touched each of my children differently, but sooner or later, they all cut their way through their personal thickets. I tried for years to discover how deeply Bernice had been affected by her father's death. Bernice, whom we called Bunny, was only five when he was taken from us. At that age, she could not put most of the horrible pieces together, but she did finally come to understand that her daddy was not coming home. Shortly after the funeral, I had to go to the bank to transact some business. It was the first time I left home without money. As I walked past the door, she called out to me, Mommy, don't go. Don't go. You may get shot. Her cries jarred me. I said, Look, I promise, nothing is going to happen to Mommy. I hoped to God my words would hold true, at least until my children were adults. Had I been thinking, I would have taken her with me. Once, months later, I asked her if she was still worried about me when I traveled, and she said, No, because I see you always coming back. I thought, well, maybe she is telling the truth to the best of her ability. 
but I always worried about what was going on deep down inside because Bunny was always the quietest of my children. After school, the other three would share what they had learned that day. But when it was Bunny's turn, she would usually say that she had nothing to share. It was a long time before she attempted to emerge from her personal exile. Bunny was very attached to her daddy in the last year of his life. Before that, she hadn't warmed up to him because he was in and out of the house so much. Yet, near the end, Martin invested a lot of quality time in her because he was determined that she would remember him. When he came home, he would stand in the front hall and let her run and jump into his arms. He played little personal games with her. He had a kissing game that he played with a whole family, where he identified on his face what he called sugar spots. My sugar was right in the center of Martin's mouth. Yoki's sugar was on the side of his mouth. Marty's and Dexter's was on each one of his cheeks. And in his last year, he played this game a lot with Bunny, and he would say, Now, where is Bunny's sugar? And she would smack him on the spot he had pointed to, which was his forehead. He'd go around and call out each of our names, and she'd identify all the sugar spots. He would do that several times so she would remember them. And then he would take her and put her on top of the refrigerator and let her jump into his arms, and they would laugh. He would do that with all the children, but I think that Bunny's getting to know him at that developmental stage and then having him snatched away was terribly devastating to her. Sometimes in her frustration, she would refer to her father as that man. Pointing to the sky, she'd say, that man up there, I don't know him. She really wanted a daddy figure. Once, when she was six or so, a white male photographer was shadowing us for a news article. Mama, she asked, is he going to my ballet recital tonight? After I told her that he was, she asked, what would be wrong with him being our daddy so he could live with us in our house? In reality, it was very difficult for Bunny to trust people. Standoffish, distant, shy, angry, that's how strangers described her. But I understood why she was so reserved. For years, everyone she loved and was close to died. First, she lost her father. The next year, in 1969, her beloved uncle, A.D., was found dead in his swimming pool under suspicious circumstances. This was in 1969, shortly after the 4th of July. Edith, Pat Lattimore, Nerissa Neal, A.D., and Naomi, and the two of their children, Darlene and Vernon, and my children and I, had just gone on a two-week vacation in Jamaica. A.D. taught Bunny how to swim on that vacation but he had to leave after one week while the rest of us stayed on. As we were packing to return to Atlanta, I received a call informing me that A.D. had died. Bunny overheard me talking and blurted out, I'm not going to any more funerals. And then her grandmother was murdered in church in 1974. Occasionally, Mama King would take care of Bunny when I was traveling. Then suddenly, Mama King was gone, too. Bunny's two cousins around her age, Darlene and Alfred, also died suddenly, both while jogging, at the young ages of twenty and thirty-four, respectively. Then Daddy King died. So even as she grew into adulthood, Bernice resisted getting close to anyone, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, because she was afraid that she was going to lose them. 
She was protecting herself from pain, fearful of developing relationships because they might lead to her being left again. When it came time for college, Bernice, like many teenagers, vacillated between wanting to be independent, maybe even from me, and wanting to be with family. She sampled several different colleges before finding the one that she thought fit. Initially, she accepted a scholarship to the predominantly white Grinnell College, which is about an hour outside Des Moines, Iowa. That opportunity came about through Andy Young, who'd given a speech there and learned from the African-American students of their desire to have more black students on campus. I advised Bernice to visit the school before applying, but she jumped at the chance to attend, primarily because her beloved Uncle Andy had suggested it and because it offered a change in scenery from Atlanta. It wasn't long before she admitted that she wished she had taken my advice to visit the college instead of plunging headlong into the new experience. She'd wanted something different, but Grinnell was too much change coming too fast for an 18-year-old. Atlanta was a warm climate. Grinnell was often an iceberg. Atlanta offered a lively urban setting. Grinnell was a town of about 17,000, with blacks numbering about 65, all of whom were either faculty or students at the college. At Grinnell, there was not a single black church. The weather, the size of the town, the lack of groups vying for social justice all amounted to culture shock for her. Once there, Bernice quickly confided, Mommy, even the black people aren't black. By that, I think she meant that the black she met there did not share the same kind of passion for black culture and the civil rights struggle that she was accustomed to. And I suspect the more staid and somber worship services in Grinnell had her longing for the upbeat gospel songs at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Feelings of loneliness and isolation from her family drove 18-year-old Bernice to tears. For the first few weeks, she cried off and on. She wanted to return home immediately but upon my advice, she completed one semester at Grinnell and came home to attend Spelman College in January 1982. Spelman is one of the top colleges in America for African-American women. After Martin's death, it had offered scholarships to both daughters. Of course, Yolanda didn't use hers, but Bernice's was still available. So this worked out well. Before understanding that often the grass only looks greener on the other side, Bernice tried one more out-of-town experience. It lasted only a matter of days. In August 1982, she enrolled at American University and was assigned to a co-ed dorm where she had to share a bathroom with a male and a dorm room with a white female. That kind of closeness in her private space plus the rigors of the academic load were too overwhelming at the time. Once again, the more Bernice experienced different, the more she seemed to really want familiar. She quickly returned to Atlanta to continue her education that fall at Spelman, from which she graduated with a degree in psychology with a concentration in pre-law in 1985. Bernice was still trying to carve out a path for herself as the daughter of one of the greatest heroes of the century while finding a way to maintain her identity as a private person. I also knew she was still grief-stricken over the loss of her father at such a young age and was struggling not to be angry at whites in general for her father's suffering and eventual assassination. 
Once home in Atlanta, she became engrossed in advancing her education. After graduating from Spelman, she enrolled in a dual divinity law program at Emory University. Both ministering and lawyering require strong communication skills, and Bernice certainly has those. Early in her teenage years, she showed promise as an excellent speaker. She volunteered to step in for me on one occasion. She must have been just 17, and she made her first major speech. I had to address the United Nations on the issue of apartheid, but I could not attend because of illness. I was trying to get Yolanda or Martin III to stand in for me when Bernice volunteered. Though it surprised me that she would volunteer, she took my speech and made it her own, and made the front page of the New York Times with it. They treated the address as if it were her speech, but of course I didn't mind. I was happy she'd done such a good job, even though I hadn't wanted her to step out into the public arena so soon. Once you do that, you have to be prepared to take the bitter with the sweet. Although Bernice was headed down the right career path, she still suffered, I think, from the lingering pain of unresolved inner conflict. Her emotional path was not a straight line. It was jagged, sometimes two steps forward and one step backward. In law school, much to my surprise, Bernice apparently contemplated suicide, although it was hard for me to accept that she really meant to carry it out. One evening, I received a startling phone call. It was from Bernice's roommate and good friend, Alice Eason. Alice told me that she had come down the stairs in the townhouse where they lived and seen my daughter with a knife in her hand. She thought Bernice was going to cut herself. I knew that the law school had placed Bernice on probation because of below-average grades. I found out later that the school had extended that probation and that Bernice was facing the prospect of being released permanently if she did not improve her grades the following semester. At that time, she was already dealing with a heavy baggage of pain. Her father's death lingered over her like a dark cloud before a storm, but would she have actually committed suicide? She has said since then that she had the knife in her hand trying to figure out how bad the pain would have been if she went on with her plan to take her own life. But after a miraculous encounter with the Holy Spirit that night, she felt comforted and changed her mind. When I received the call, I got on the phone with her Aunt Christine and we rushed over to see Bernice. We told her how much we loved her and that we would do anything for her. I talked to her siblings, encouraged them to call her more often, and Yolanda absolutely drew closer to her. Bernice, like her father, suffered from depression. Is that surprising? Who wouldn't, considering what Martin and Bernice had to deal with? Martin had the weight of the world on his shoulders and often went for days without sleeping. Bernice grieved for him for a long time. Thankfully, in time, ministry became Bernice's salvation. I'm very clear about that. She was compelled to follow the call. It was God's way of saving her life. She often talked about how badly she missed Martin and longed to have a conversation with him. Finally, those conversations began happening. Martin came to her in several dreams. In one particular dream, she said he looked just like he did right before he left us. She said that he was sitting in a chair. Yolanda was standing next to him on his right, and Bernice was facing both of them. She told me, I started pointing my finger at him like I was fussing at him. 
Why haven't you been in touch? Yolanda answered, He's been in touch with me. After looking at Yolanda, Martin looked back at Bernice and said, You will understand. It's my ministry. Bernice told me that Martin had appeared to her at a very strategic time. It was an affirmation of my call into ministry because there was still some negative talk about women not preaching. That dream opened up my understanding of why my daddy was no longer with us. His suffering was part of his ministry, and he was telling me, as I continued on in the ministry, that I will understand the sacrifice and the price that one will have to make for others. After that dream, Bernice said that she finally found enough peace, understanding, and encouragement to enthusiastically continue on with her life. Bernice went on to graduate in May 1990 from the dual degree program at Emory University with a Master of Divinity degree and a Juris Doctor degree. The same day she received both degrees, she was also ordained as a minister. I never heard any more about depression or suicide attempts. And after experiencing another dream about her father, she was making great progress, I felt, toward inner healing. Bernice told me that she began believing that God was calling on her to preach when she was about 17 years old. I had often wondered if a child of mine would get the call, although I did not like to bring it up for fear that it would seem like I was pushing them. Daddy King had expected the call to come for Martin III. My heart swelled with pride when Bernice told me that an inner voice had encouraged her to follow in her father's preaching footsteps. But I understood the difficulties. Because Bernice is the daughter of Martin Luther King, Jr., her road in ministry would be easier, but not exactly simple. I must be clear, this is the South. Sexism in many black Baptist churches is as normal as passing the collection plate on a Sunday morning. Somehow, recalcitrant pastors and preachers remain. These men ignore scripture references to Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday when he came first to Mary Magdalene and empowered her to preach one of the greatest sermons ever given. He is risen. Moreover, Jesus, who is called the Word in the Gospel of John, came into this world through the seed of a woman, not through the sperm of a man. If a woman can give birth to the Word, certainly she can preach his Word, too. Yet many black Baptist pastors, as well as white pastors in the Southern Baptist denomination, will simply refuse to ordain a woman. At some Baptist churches, if a woman is invited to preach, she is referred to as a speaker and is not allowed to preach from the pulpit. She must preach from the floor. My daughter preached her trial sermon from the pulpit, not from the floor, on March 27, 1988, at Ebenezer. Of course, I, along with Yolanda, Martin III, and Dexter, and other immediate family, from both Martin's and my side of the family, were there in the congregation for her first sermon. Although Bernice didn't have the benefit of having Daddy King and Mama King's presence that day, she was honored that my parents, whom the kids called Granddaddy and Nina, were there. Her sermon was entitled, Getting Above the Crowd, and was based on the story of Zacchaeus, a short man who had to climb a sycamore tree to get above the crowd to see Jesus. Her trial sermon was so good. It was amazing. She fasted for seven days before she spoke. 
and I felt she had certainly heard from heaven. Uncle Andy was there, and he cried like a baby. After what he asked me, did she ever listen to Martin's tapes? Bernice told me that she had not, yet Andy and I both had heard speech patterns like Martin's. And she held her fingers like Martin used to, gestured with her hands like Martin. It was there in the way she tilted her head, in her flashes of humor. She was so much like Martin, it was incredible. The sermon, the style, the substance actually caused Andy to wonder if certain facets of spirituality, not only the preaching, but also the understanding and revelations, are somehow inherited, passed through the bloodline. Bernice is always fine when she is in the pulpit. When you see her standing there, you never know how she struggles to get her sermon together. With Bernice, things are black or white, right or wrong. There are no in-betweens. It can be hard to find friends to talk to when you are moralistic. She is not a saint, but she is very definite about her views of good and evil. I stay close to her. I encouraged Bernice to pull closer to her two brothers. For the longest time, she felt they picked on her when she was growing up. Still, she tried to play with the boys. She grew up with more boys than girls. Her sister was eight years older than she. Now she is making strong female friends, especially in the ministry. I have heard from many sources that Bernice is a mesmerizing, anointed preacher with many ministry gifts. But preaching is one gift, and pastoring is quite another, and she needed pastoring experience. So she went to her pastor, the Reverend Joseph Roberts, and asked if she could assist him at Ebenezer. She hoped to help troubled youth. Bernice is very good at counseling and resolving conflicts and has a talent for mediation. Sometimes when Dexter and I were at an impasse, she could come in, cut right to the chase, and help us reach a resolution. She thought Reverend Roberts could make use of these gifts and help her gain the necessary experience, but he instructed her to look for apprenticeship elsewhere. This was exactly the same thing he'd done with A.D. and Naomi's son, Reverend Vernon C. King and Reverend Derek King, who preceded Bernice into ministry. He instructed them to look for apprenticeship elsewhere. It was quite an historic break, not to have an ordained member of the immediate King family in the Ebenezer pulpit. Fortunately, Bernice found another pastor, Byron Broussard, who was ready to use her gifts and help her gain pastoral experience at Greater Rising Star Baptist Church, affectionately known as the Love Center, located in an inner-city community in Atlanta. And later, Reverend Roberts did have her preach at Ebenezer. If she still feels called to pastor in the future, I think she could certainly start her own church. Context of White Supremacy that will wrap our first audio segment. Uh, if folks have commentary you would like to share, uh, feel free to chime in. The number to dial, 641-715-3640. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641 715 
5640 the code 564943 pound press star 6 if you would like to participate uh, if you would like to join us uh, for the discussion but you don't want to use your phone you can use the free vote line it is linked at black talk radio network if you need the address it is tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one address again tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one um, you put in that address look on the left of the page you'll see the link it says uh, free vote line click that link it'll open a small window on your screen uh, on the top line it's a drop down menu select the number I just gave out which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero next line it will ask for the code that code again is five six four nine four three final line it will ask for a name you can put in a real name nickname you can press random keys whatever you're comfortable with once you get all that information entered click the green button at the bottom it will connect you to the live broadcast you should be able to hear us same procedure if you want to participate uh, you'll see the dial pad on your screen press star six uh, when you do that you will hear an audio prompt press the number one we will get you on the program uh, with that, uh, folks that dialed in, and uh, just to make sure no one is confused, uh, we left off. We're in Chapter 21. Uh, we'll probably, I think we're going to finish uh, all of Chapter 21 uh, when we do the second audio segment. But we're uh, still in Chapter 21. That's where we'll pick up at when we uh, resume the second audio segment. With that, folks who dialed in who have a hand up, if you have commentary you would like to share, uh, feel free. Line should be open. Proceed. Oops. Slack. Okay, there we go. Sorry about that. Took me a little extra. Line should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, hey, I missed last week, uh, but I uh, listened to it on the uh, archives. But uh, anyway, uh, the first thing, first notes that I put down, I put down was uh, how I think she spoke accurately uh, to the. Uh, Form the foot to the to the form of racism that was practiced during the Reagan and Bush Bush administrations, and uh, the things that uh, and she also spoke accurately to the things that would aid non-white people under the system of racist white supremacy, which is a form of justice according to Mr. Fuller's meaning of justice. Uh, number two. Uh, just an observation based on what I was hearing in the reading, uh, sh showing favor over one white person to another simply because that one white person is a little bit nicer and gives victims a little bit more, more uh, uh, cookies and, and uh, uh, some slack has proven a failure to solving the problem of racist white supremacy. I, I hear it all the time on uh, especially uh, non-white uh, victims of racist white supremacy who are quote-unquote popular uh, and involve themselves in, a, in, in uh, politics on how they make this juggling act 
uh, here uh, in this case, it, it was uh, with uh, with uh, Mr. Clinton after those those administrations. And the same thing we know, of course, between uh, Mr. Trump and uh, uh, his wife. Uh, number three, uh, I got down here. I may, I may have to remember what I wrote down here on this one. Uh, defending uh, defending America uh, is I have down here. It's cold to it's it's actually it's cold to applying direct violence on behalf of white supremacy. You know, you hear that phrase all the time. It's like a cliche: defending America, defending America, and we have to get some money to defend America. And 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 if if utilize as a cliche, but every time you see the results, for the most part, it's, it's, a non, it's some non-white people who, who are getting harmed severely, you know, uh, around the world. And a lot of times right right here where, where, where we uh, are at right now in this part of the world. Uh, number four, uh, just, this is a tremendous curiosity because I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the problems that she had as well as her children had after the death of her husband and their father. And I was just curious on to find out if there was any attempts to acquire the services of Dr. Francis Welsing. I mean, in, in my mind, out of anybody in the entire world that, that I'm aware of, uh, I would figure that uh, she would be someone that uh, either either from a mutual friend or somebody or them, they themselves uh, would have acquired her services. Uh, and I'll be surprised if they didn't know who she was. May not have been in the 60s, but definitely in the 70s and the 80s. I'll be surprised they didn't know, they didn't know who Dr. Welsing was. Just curious. Anyway, uh, uh, I, was, I just put down here, I was glad that uh, Bernie attended uh, Spellman. And uh, to find out she did graduate, uh, I, I thought that was a good a good thing. Uh, uh, I have down here number six. Why? why uh, oh, uh, uh, why? Uh, because she, uh, Mrs. King, mentioned about she was concerned about her her child's anger at white people, and I'm saying, what's wrong with that? I'm my my my, my mind. I'm I'm just talking out loud. If somebody wants to. To contest it, just let me know. Uh, uh, why shouldn't you be mad at white people? That, that's not necessarily unhealthy, <laughs> as far as, as far as my mind set is. You know, uh, it depends on what you do with the anger. Uh, last but not least, uh, uh, I, I just just a, just a thought out loud. Uh, I'm just thinking if if, if without uh, Dr. King. Uh, Making an a uh, an attempt, a very courageous attempt, uh, to neutralize the system of white supremacy. I I doubt seriously that he would have been as popular as he as well known as he actually was. Uh, uh, that to me is what set him apart. Uh, of his of his uh, and I heard Dr. Wilson describe it in this way as, as imposing a hop had hypotheses and impose his his uh. Uh, scientific experimentations, and uh, he was brave enough to take it all all of the way. You know, uh, most of us, including the person that's talking right now, is just talking, and he actually put it to practice. 
And uh, I think that's something that's a very encouraging thing, a uh, very dangerous thing. A lot of people are not willing to follow, but nevertheless, uh, I, I, I really uh, respect him for it. And that's all I have for right now. Thank you. Appreciate that, uh, retired firefighter. Uh, great observations. That's, that is an interesting question. I guess, uh, I don't know, maybe somebody has information. would have been great to ask Dr. Welsing that. But, uh, yeah, if, if uh, Coretta Scott King or any of her offspring, offspring um, saw Dr. Welsing out maybe to get some counseling, she's third-generation physician, general and child psychiatrist. She certainly seems like she would have been someone. Or, or Betty Shabazz and her children. That, mm-hmm. I, I'm, you know. Mm-hmm. Any number of folks, any number of folks who went through all right. that trauma to try to get, you know, a little bit of healing uh, from someone who dedicated her life to that. And they got the Antioch College connection. That's that's a interesting point. If anybody gets any any info, I guess uh, just quickly about the point about the. Uh, Mrs. King expressing concern about <clears throat> one of her children uh, hating white people or, or thinking that they're going to hate white people, uh, I guess the problem from her perspective, from just from what I've read in the book, it would seem to be that that's, that's not the view that Dr. King took. Like that seems like his, his strategy and the, and the principles that they've been promoting uh, seem like they've been very much about uh, reconciliation and, and we're not going to hate anybody and we're going to overcome them with love and, and we're going to get them to not only stop practicing racism, but we're going to get them to love us and we'll love them and we'll all be in this together. So uh, it would seem, at least just based on what I've heard from the book, it would seem like uh, hating white people, quote unquote, would be very much uh, in opposition to what they, Dr. King and Mrs. King, uh, have been uh, promoting just based on what we've read in the book, but I could be could be off in what I'm uh, what I'm reading my thought process. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, <clears throat> if you have commentary, I guess the section did the audio segment. The first one was a little shorter than we normally do, but the second it's because this chapter is is uh, disproportionately longer. Twenty one is very very long, so most of it is in the second half. That's why it's a little off. Other folks that we haven't heard from, if you have commentary you would like to share, line should be open. Feel free. Yes, ma'am. Good to hear from you, Amy. Greetings, beautiful people. Um, I'm going to be just very honest. I don't like this book. Um, I have learned some things. I think I'm able to piece together a lot more than before, only because we read Breakthrough, and so I'm able to put them together. Um, But I'm not very much enjoying this book. I felt, I don't know what I was expecting, so maybe that's really my fault uh, for having expectations in the first place. Um, but I didn't. I wasn't too fond, too, too much at the beginning and not really more towards the end. So I'm kind of looking forward to um, wrapping this book up. I, um, I not so much just particularly focused on this section of the reading, but um one thing that I kind of taken away from listening, and I well, one thing that this particular portion of the reading like really, really highlighted for me, and I'll say this, BGQ for me, BGQ for anybody else who listens to this now or in the future. Um, but it's I feel it's very important for me to keep in mind and that Miss King and this entire uh, a lot of the people that she's referring to are really, really diehard Christians, um, Bible-thumping Christians. Like, we're not, 
looking at anything, like everything is within the lens of Christianity and what Christians do and what Christians don't do and what Christians believe and what Christians don't believe and all that kind of stuff, which for me, I don't, I don't, I'm not someone who has that same lens. Um, I'm not saying that that discounts her or anybody else. I'm simply stating that in listening to this particular portion, I was just like, man, you know. Oh, and I will say this just in case. Um, you know, at one time I was coached at Church of God in Christ, you know, saved and, you know, highly favored and all that good stuff. But it, it doesn't, for me, wanting to be more logical about things, wanting to be uh, scientific about things, it's not very helpful. Um, so what I see really is just a lot of delusion and confusion. Um, and again, VGQ, trauma is the word that's been placed on this book. So I'm not saying that she's not within her right or her children are not within their right to have been dealing with everything that they're dealing with in the best way that they can deal with it. I'm not taking anything away from that. I'm simply stating that what I, what I feel like I'm looking at, what I'm looking at is a lot of confusion, not just about the system of white supremacy, but just confusion in general. And then delusion, like it's not, this isn't logical. This isn't linear. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me at all. Um, for instance, like when she said that she allowed her child to play the prostitute, I understand as a parent, you want to allow your child that freedom. I'm not a parent. So I'll say that too. Um, I can understand that. But I also think if you sat your child down and explained, you know, a little bit more and talked about this, and this may not be the best thing, I don't really see you know, especially the fact, thank you, that she kissed the white boy. And, of course, her mom is not going to have an issue because her first love was a white boy. Like, so I just felt that I don't think that that was the right choice. I don't think that was the correct choice. It was a choice that was made. She did what she did. Everybody did what they did. It's done and over. But the fact that it was Julia Roberts' parents, if I heard that correctly or whatever, I just felt like that that could have been racism and, and, and not being able to see that. Like, look, you got my child, a king daughter. You want her to play a prostitute? This is the first thing she's going to play that everybody's going to look at. You want her to play the prostitute? I don't know. Maybe you should play something else first or whatever, you know, and that whole thing, oh, if I could play a prostitute, then I could play anything. Not this. I mean, yeah, but there's so many other things, too. You know, you could play the first black female president. That's something that you don't really know nothing about, and that would be the same kind of stretch in terms of your acting ability. So I didn't really appreciate that. Um, and I just felt like it's just too much um, when I'm listening in the sense that it's not really making much sense. And I also listen, I wasn't on last week's call, um, so I'm, I, but I did listen to it before listening to this one. And I would, that whole thing just had me a little uh, upset as well. I was just like, I don't, and I, you know, I'll say this too, just be, so I can be uh, honest with myself and not be con concealing things. I used to feel like everybody else was using the king name in a real bad way. Like they would just like Ted talks, everybody is saying Dr. King. Anybody want to talk about anything, they just use Dr. King's name and just use his name. And I kind of feel like the King family or maybe Miss King is doing that too. I don't, and I mean, it's her husband, it's her name. That's her life. Like she invested. So maybe she has that right. And I'm totally off the charts or off the meat rack with this, but um, I just feel like it's just like constantly like I'm a king, you're a king, she's a king, we're king, so we're going to do this king thing. And I just I don't really see where any there's been any real substantial change to, to, to justify this kind of thing. And I agree. I didn't even to, you know, express my own level of not knowing and ignorance. Uh, I didn't even really ever consider how the king holiday came to even be a holiday. Like, I don't I just was like, it is. <laughs> but so when I listen to how much energy and effort it took for what you know what i mean like most people don't care 
um, if you go to work, so what? The more white people are getting off. Like, I'm not so sure what the whole point was that. And so I feel like maybe maybe she herself was traumatized and didn't realize, like, maybe it, it made her take a turn and she just kind of got wrapped up and she needed to add meaning and find value and sort this thing out and figure out who she was and, and she was who she was in relation to him and now he's gone. She has to do this. But I don't know. It just felt like I'm not so sure. And some, And then this is the last thing I'm going to say. For me, I respect what Dr. King did. I respect anybody who's attempted to do anything about the system of white supremacy, whether it's just opening doors for other black people, like literally. I respect that and being kind. So and anyone can ask me, 1842, any, what have you done? So I'm not saying that it's, you know, I'm not down talking, downplaying, disrespecting at all. But I don't think that we should just be like, he's a national hero, like, these people are national heroes. And to make it seem like everybody, all these things that happened, this legislation all just happened because of Dr. King, I feel like she's way too smart to be doing that. And she should be giving credence, credit to the other people who were doing things who maybe were pushing white people in ways that white people were like, look, it's really these radical ones that got us feeling like we should sign this legislation, but we'll go ahead and say it's King. So then everyone thinks that we're going to do this peace thing. And see, we can say, well, see, it was the peace that got this legislation when really it was the ones who was like, look, we're going to blow this up if you don't. And I just, I just feel like I don't, I don't really, I don't, I'm not sure how to express it. I don't like how the story's being spun. It's horse, it's her story, but I'm not, I'm ready to move on. Thank you for listening. Strong words from Emmy. Ready to move on from uh, Mrs. King's autobiography. Uh, do we have uh, any other folks who dialed in with a hand up? That was an interesting connection with the uh, Mrs. King's daughter who's doing this play where she's a prostitute and connecting that to uh, Mrs. King's Antioch experience that she talked about at the very beginning of the text where she's dating this white guy. I think he was Jewish and uh, all the little difficulties that they had in their little brief, uh, quote unquote, interracial romance, uh, collegiate romance. Uh, do we have other folks uh, who dialed in who have a hand up that we've uh, not heard from, have commentary that they wanted to share? Maybe other listeners are, are disgruntled uh, with Mrs. King's autobiography as well. I'll look for hands uh, while I'm sharing out some of my notes uh, as well. And we did have uh, at least one listener who wrote in uh, commentary on the text. I'll uh, do some of my notes and then I'll make sure to include some of her observations as well. Um, I definitely felt like the tone uh, of the book uh, changed like drastically. Um, I, I think like the first... Uh, up maybe to the assassination. I'd say almost up to the point where Felicia Rashad uh, comes in to narrate. Uh, I did enjoy the text. I think I've been talking about it. I, I had a much higher level of enjoyment. Uh, I felt like I was learning a lot of uh, details about what was happening during like the Montgomery bus boycott and uh, other aspects of what was happening during the 50s and 60s uh, with their civil rights work and, and getting to hear a lot of uh perspectives from Mrs. King that I hadn't heard before. What did she think about all this? And when their house was bombed and all these other things were happening, uh, to hear her perspective and what she thought about uh, how things were evolving. But that change that changes uh, significantly. I think I said that last week as well, uh, that from about the time from the assassination forward, I feel like it's just a lot more name dropping of, you know, cool folks who stopped by the King Center or people that, you know, she got to spend time with. 
uh, and then all this work to get the King Center and that sort of thing. Like it just does not seem uh, to have, at least for me, it doesn't seem to have as much uh, enticing information. Uh, very much, I think, as Amy had pointed out before, very much reminding me of uh, Gwen Eiffel's The Breakthrough, which we read at the end of 2016, the late uh, Gwen Eiffel. Uh, and just the, the kind of focus on uh, voting, that's the thing to do, voting and, and getting legislation passed uh, and even seeming like taking a moment to have some sort of, uh, I don't know if I, it would be ce celebration. I don't know if celebration would be the right uh, word, but uh, it definitely seems like taking taking time to, to stop and I don't know, <laughs> if not if not celebrate to, to praise or acknowledge uh, with some sort of happiness uh, laws or centers that are constructed, built, passed, whatever the case, as opposed to things that actually end racism, white supremacy. Uh, some of the actual uh, notes. Yeah, the, the prostitute and the play thing. And just for that to be so consistent. When I say consistent, meaning that sort of depiction of black people is just too common. Uh, it's not a one-time thing. It's it's just it's a predictable thing uh, for black people. If it's some sort of uh, entertainment or a movie, uh, <clears throat> the black person is going to be uh, <clears throat> not intelligent, not a doctor. Uh, Julia Roberts, and she was mentioned, her breakout role is not going to be uh, her being some sort of uh, poor grammar having white girl. Uh, being a prostitute for a well-educated black person, like that's not going to be her breakout uh, stage role or any other uh, white person uh, that's coming up just standard. I even thought that line where she said, uh, when she's talking about this whole situation, she says that, um, I guess this was, this was getting around and she says it was just, it was just a play. Like when people were getting upset with her about why are you allowing your daughter to do this? And if, you know, Dr. King was still alive, he would never have allowed, you know, Yolanda to do such a thing and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and she says that, uh, somehow people seem to not understand that this was just theater. People say that all the time. And I think, um, we, when we had, uh, the guest Khalid Gooding, they did the book. So you mean there's a race in my movie? We had them, uh, he and his uh, co-author, we had them on the program many years back. <clears throat> asked them that same question. Uh, when people uh, make critiques about things like this, when you have a performance with a black person, it's going to be a prostitute or you have other works, Empire and that sort of thing. Scandal uh, where you have Kerry Washington, same sort of thing, some sort of uh, se sexual trashiness uh, with a white person uh, and saying, hey, if it's just theater. Well, then we should be able to take Nat Turner and show it to all the little kindergartners tomorrow, right? If it's just, you know, entertainment, this is just a movie. This is not real. You know, why are you taking this uh, so serious? White people know the power uh, of those images and the stories and how you stories and how you portray people. They know the power of that. Dr. Welsing talked about that a lot with Joseph Goebbels, uh, things that were done during uh, Nazi Germany. Um, <clears throat> the. Let's see. Next up, when she says when she's talking about Bunny, one of her other daughters, when she says uh, she's talking about how difficult it was uh, for her to trust people. And, you know, she thought that her mom, Mrs. King, uh, that she was going to die. And then when she goes through that detailed list, when she says for years, everyone she loved and was close to died. First, she lost her father. And the next year in 1969, her beloved uncle A.D. was found dead in his swimming pool under suspicious circumstances. This was very shortly after the 4th of July. Edith Pat. Pat Lamour, Narissa Neal, A.D., and Naomi, and two of their children, Darlene and Vernon, uh, and my children, 
had just gone to a two-week vacation in Jamaica, and she talks about uh, just all of this death and then having to tell or her finding out that A.D. died, Dr. King's brother, and the grandma, just all of this death, 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 trauma. I think we talked about that before, how people in this in the text, uh, the way it's been presented, how they've responded to death. This seems logical. <clears throat> the trauma, I think that's the word that I've said, and it just continues, just generations of, of trauma. And I mean, people, they have all these studies now on epigenetics and, and how this... Uh, impacts you on a genetic level in terms of passing that on. I mean, just generations of trauma. Uh, and I think I said last week, I can totally understand having dealt with all of that. I can totally get how you would just say, hey, I'm going to try to be as loving as I possibly can. Let's love everybody. Let's all be about. I can totally get it, and particularly when you factor in the Christianity. I think that's also a huge component of this text. Uh, Mrs. King, Dr. King, their children, uh, parents, everyone, all the black main black characters that we've heard from, at least being so devoted uh, to Christianity, which generally the way that it is uh, practiced on the planet invariably supports the system of racism. White supremacy really is the religion of white supremacy. Uh, and, and that's why it fits, uh, I think, so nicely uh, with the ideas of not hating white people and uh, dogmatic commitment to nonviolence and never retaliating, never being about self-defense. And there's supposed to be some sort of reconciliation and uh, there's this uh, consistent emphasis on white people uh, having these bonds with white people, having white friends and white dating partners and that sort of thing. I think a lot of that is connected to uh, the religion of white supremacy, the uh, projection of images. I mean, if you could just contrast that they have successfully projected white images of Jesus for centuries while they're projecting black people like Dr. King's daughter, projecting her as a prostitute with poor English. Very, very effective. Um, but the, the trauma just really stood out to me, and that's something that she's mentioned. Even the fact that she mentioned the suspiciousness of AD's death in that swimming pool, I wish she had said more about that because the fact that she mentioned that twice and she worded it that way, uh, to me, it, it, it strongly suggests that she might have had more to say about that and just didn't want to share publicly. She talked about being kind of a reserved person and not super public, but to me, it sounds very much like she might have had some suspicions uh, that racists may have been involved with the death of her brother-in-law. I think she is going to talk about her, her thoughts on James Earl Ray and whether or not he assassinated her uh, husband. I think that might even be coming up uh, in the second audio segment. Um, continuing, uh, when she talks about uh, Bernice uh, and her maybe committing suicide, again, trauma, trauma, black mental health, just keep saying that over and over. That's been the main theme. Uh, that I take away from this uh, book. And I mean, wow, I think retired firefighter had mentioned that earlier about uh, maybe having contact uh, with Dr. Welsing uh, to get help. I mean, this is black people. You go through all this suffering. Uh, I don't know if she was in the house hearing all these phone calls, people threatening them and nigger this, and we're going to kill you. And, you know, saying nasty things about uh, her dad who was killed and just, just how that scars you uh, and how you have so much to just try to deal with and heal from and, Oh, man, I cannot even uh, imagine uh, in terms of how you just try to survive, just try to try to focus and, and do anything, uh, having to deal with all that. It's just trauma. And that's something that stood out in a lot of the text. I think a lot, at least the autobiographies that we've read, uh, Asada Shakur and Minister Malcolm, it's kind of been pretty similar in terms of it. Just the, the folks who've shared details, it's been very similar in terms of there just being long uh, patterns and you know, long histories of black people being abused for just generations. Um, with that, 
Other folks have commentary? I have a little bit more if, if nobody else is uh, going to uh, put in. It's like they're still disgruntled. Maybe everyone is not feeling this portion of the book. Uh, proceed, fi- uh, retired firefighter. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was going to uh, speak a little little on that. Uh, with me, uh, my uh, I didn't have any expectations that what uh, Mrs. King was going to uh, uh, talk about was going to be you know, anything uh, that would, you know, draw my my sincere interest. What was interesting about it in the beginning actually was was the uh, history. Basically, basically, she was personally, directly, physically involved with with uh, some historical context uh, on racism, on counter racism, uh, counter racism attempts, and so with her speaking about those particular events that we consider, we know is is history uh, just to follow it and be able to, to comment on it uh, was, was uh, an interest of mine. Uh, but I wasn't expecting, I wasn't expecting anything out of Mrs. King. And, and I don't think it's ironic if you look at uh, uh, just about uh, all of the, uh, the martyrs' wives uh, in this part of the world, anyway. Well, it don't have to be this part of the world because uh, she's an exception. Uh, I'm talking about Winnie Mandela, although she wasn't uh, uh, Nelson Mandela's only wife, but she is. She was very much different from uh, Merle Evers, uh, the the wife of Medgar Evers, uh, 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 Betty Shabazz, the wife of Malcolm X. Uh, they all were kind of like the same to me in a, in a large sense from what their personal ideas or strategies involving to uh, talk about and or attempt uh, counter-racism, uh, which I guess, you know, it's kind of, kind of, uh, it, it must be something in common from the standpoint of because of all of the trauma that they live through, uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to go that way. I'm not going to follow in the, in that way. And like I said, the only exception to me was Winnie Mandela, you know, unless somebody can tell me anything different. It may be a, maybe a few more, but, uh, I, I wasn't expecting anything, uh, uh, as far as that concern. Uh, and with the, uh, the center that to me, and I could be wrong about that. That to me is more or less where it's a, a shrine for a husband, more so than anything. You know, I mean, she mentioned about all of the things that it does and it could do, but uh, I visited several times, and that that's always in my mind is is a shrine to his what he attempted to do, which is you know it, it may not be a bad thing, but from from the the subject matter of solving the problem of racism, white supremacy, I do know personalities can't, can't play a factor in that. You know, they used to have a saying, bury the man, continue to plan, you know, as far as that concern, you know, just, uh, you know, that, that, that's to be expected because it's going to be in a war in, in, in this, in this war, 
And, and I heard you saying it's true uh, because I've thought it all. We, we don't even know we at we we don't even know that we're at war. Uh, but uh, I guess some of us were in our way of it, and they've tried to uh, impose something that would would uh, overturn the the, uh, the terror that's being done to us. Uh, but uh, that's the idea in mind, and not not so much about uh, me and my personality or my husband's my husband's uh, legacy, quote unquote, you know that sort of thing. Uh, even with a, a live person, uh, the, the former president, you know, I've heard I heard that term come up a whole lot about his quote unquote legacy, uh, Mr. Obama's legacy. That 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 doesn't factor in to solving the problem of racism and white supremacy. And that's all I have to say. Here, here. Great way of uh, thinking, not about individuals. And that's not a put down. I mean, that's, you know, Gus T included, not about individuals, just about getting the problem solved. And racist, uh, they have done a pretty spectacular job of getting us distracted on lots of other things, symbols, even a lot of the rhetoric this week with the removal of those Confederate uh, shrines to Confederate generals um, coming down. That's not solving the problem. Uh, just making sure that everyone is informed about that, whether you, you know, take all those down and put up, you know, 20 different statues to Coretta Scott King and Ruby Bridges and Dr. King or whoever else uh, you think is cool. That's not solving the problem. Uh, that's what we want to make sure that we stay focused on because whites, uh, they are very good uh, at getting us distracted with that sort of thing. Uh, I did. I said that uh, we had one person who wrote in uh, her commentary. She's wrote in before. She's been listening the whole way through, uh, but she, you know, just can't. Some people, a lot of people, they just listen to the archive. So she's been writing in her commentary. So she said, whether it was in the first half of the book when uh, January Lavoie narrated, I looked up some information on her and ring the cowbell. Oh my, may have been why it felt like she was romanticizing this period in Mrs. King's life. This was when a lot of brutal terrorism was happening to her family and later to her husband. In my opinion, it is possible that the narrator's background could have caused her to read and speak in a manner that would help her not to see what one of her parents were a racist suspect. So it's possible that the, that the actor in her caused her to interpret Mrs. King's words in a romanticized way, excusing white people for their collective racism. Now that is interesting. Uh, the narrator's influence on reading the text continuing. I remember listening to an archive where, uh, myself uh, and Cree uh, were talking about being in a how being in a tragic arrangement can cause one to think in an unhealthy manner, excusing the abuse by white people due to the involvement on such an intimate level. Early on in the book, Mrs. King spoke of having had a two year tragic arrangement, which could have had could have and probably did influence the way she saw and spoke about white people wanting to believe that they are not all the same. I did not find it surprising that the tone of the book when speaking to or about white people would be one of courtesy since we have been programmed to speak to white people, especially those that she felt were in a position to lend assistance that can be altering that can be life altering with a bowing of the head and knees. Remembering remember she was a Christian turn the other cheek and such unless you were speaking to or about someone who looked like you because with them you could be as discourteous as you like for they are not in a position to give you assistance that will make changes in your life or in the life of other non-white people. I think the tone of the second half changed in the sense that the narrator changed to Felicia Rashad. 
That uh, this is where we begun to see an emergence of who Mrs. King was. Although the abuse and trauma continued in her life, Mrs. King moved from her husband's stand on fighting injustices of non-white black people. Yes, he was inclusive when it came to his nonviolent stand, but and I would be I could be incorrect in this. His fight for just justice was specifically for non-white black people. Mrs. King, however, began to incorporate everybody. In my opinion, she tried to be a white people pleaser and a Bill Cosby like pull up your pants. You know, good Negroes in the way she spoke to and about non-white people. This could be the way Mrs. Rashad, an actor, is interpreting Mrs. King's words. I do. I do understand her annoyance with Jesse Jackson. He was doing things in her eyes to discredit her attempted husband. I may have felt some kind of way if my attempted husband made a counter racist stand and was assassinated for it. And I believed someone from his inner circle was trying to discredit him. Although that would show my lack of understanding on where my distrust should be placed. And that is with white people. No criticism of Mrs. King, for she has certainly done more than I ever have in the cause of countering racism. Uh, One of our uh, female listeners to uh, dial in and absolutely I have no uh, criticism critique of uh, Mrs. King uh, either just sharing views uh, on the book and which portion of the book I appreciated more which portion of the book uh, I was not so fond of uh, any other uh, commentary folks want to get in anything uh, else uh, the person in dialed in last four digits uh, 5647 5647 did you have commentary Caller at five six four seven. Are you just listening, or did you have question commentary you wanted to share? Greetings, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings. This is uh, Rob in Milwaukee. Um, I have uh, been unable uh, to dial in, um, but I have been uh, listening along. So I would like to. Uh, Sorry, Rob. Your volume is low. Can you speak up? Give us, give us more, Rob. Very good to hear from you again, sir. Just make sure you speak up so we can hear you clear. Okay. Can I be heard? We can hear you. Is it is it possible to get a little bit more volume or no? Or actually, I'm just looking at the volume monitor. Yours looks a little bit, a little bit lower than everybody else's. Okay. Can I be heard clearly now? Uh, let's see. I, let's go ahead with that. We'll see if that works. That is an improvement. Okay. Uh, I would like to comment briefly on the part about um, Dr. King um, attempting to be a um, black father. Um, And the commentary that stood out was um, when he would come home and greet his daughter, um, just open his arms and let her jump on. Um, That is... um, very intimate um, portion of the book, I thought, and the spot about um, when she talked about the uh, sugar spots on his face, I guess where he would close his eyes and um, let the family members kiss particular parts of his face and then would um, guess who uh, kissed him in that spot. Um, I thought that that was um, really uh, loving. And um, I would like to just highlight uh, 1842's commentary. And um, while I have been unable to participate in the commentary, um, listening has been um, very constructive. And um, what I would like to comment on is the growth 
that I see from the uh, Cows listeners. Um, I think the people that tune in to the Cows have a uh, very um, critical mind, and a, um, I think we are in the school of a scientific approach to uh, countering racism. And um, 1842's commentary uh, really just put me in the mind of being a critical thinker, and I think that when you are a critical thinker, it can borderline um, coming off as anti-black. But I would just throw out the question, how does one be critical thinking of our leadership and or attempted black leaders, whatever that means, and um, thinking critically? Um, I think it's a fine line. And uh, thank you for taking my call. Indeed, indeed. Good to hear from you. Rob in Wisconsin, uh, using our brain computer to try to make sense of things, using logic to come to some intelligent, sensible conclusions uh, on what has happened, what is happening, and things that we should be doing. Absolutely. That's what I would encourage everyone to do. And and that that right there kind of does not just, you know, thinking in that sort of logical way does not uh, or at least it minimizes uh, there being so much uh, emphasis placed on uh, the personality or how much I like this person or, you know, this person is really good at going out and talking to a large group of people like you're, you're really just evaluating logic. What is what is true? Uh, what are the problems and, and what needs to be done to, to get those problems uh, corrected immediately? That's that's very, very important. And racists, again, they've done a, a phenomenal job discouraging us from using logic to address racism, white supremacy. Any other comments folks want to get in before we get to audio segment number two? Everyone satisfied? Anything else uh, folks wanted to get in? I'll assume folks uh, are good. I even, it was slight. It seemed like she was uh, going pretty quick uh, when she was kind of going through her relationship uh, or some of the ways that she, um, I don't want to say challenged, uh, but had her own critiques of uh, President Reagan, uh, his policies, same thing with uh, President Clinton, even though it seemed like she uh, was more in line with some of his views and at least appreciated some of the efforts that uh, she thinks he made to, to get people out of poverty in this part of the world, even though she also acknowledged his uh, drug campaign, which locked up a lot of uh, black people. And uh, just again, I think Emmy was talking about this uh, racist. They they tend to be very, very good uh, at getting a sizable number of black and non-white people, if not all of us, certainly most of us. Even those of us who who understand, yeah, white supremacy is a problem. We got to do something about this. Still getting us uh, to think, well, yeah, white supremacy is a problem. But boy, that's slick Willie. Bill Clinton is something. <laughs> that guy was. I think even Pam talked about that on the program before when she was more confused about racism. She liked uh, Bill Clinton and voted for him. Thought he was a great. Many black people. I even know a, a huge numbers of black people who still. Uh, just adore the Clintons and it's not specific to the Clintons. It's just, as I stated, whites are very, very good after all the centuries of terrorism, trauma, abuse. Uh, Dr. Welsing talked about it as Stockholm syndrome. Uh, whites have done a phenomenal job uh, 
at contaminating us to think, hey, this white person is A-OK. Uh, that is my man. That's my woman. Uh, that's my candidate. I'm going to go out and vote for them. And I want to see them stay in office the way she had talked about Jimmy Carter. Like she didn't talk about Bill Clinton the way that she talked about Jimmy Carter before. Like I remember that was why that is definitely a section that will stick out uh, in my mind. The, the uh effusive praise that she had for former president carter uh i will pause here uh so we can get to audio segment number two uh this will finish chapter 21 i think she does address some of her thoughts on james Earl ray which will be great to hear i'm really excited to hear her commentary on that uh we'll wrap that up and then folks can get in final comments for the day uh we have one more week left and we'll be done moving on to a new book so folks can be thinking about that as well what we would like to read next that's it Coretta Scott King, My Life, My Love, My Legacy, audio segment number two. Again, we are picking up uh, in chapter 21, uh, and it's going to be, oops, missed my page up here. Uh, it's going to be the section where she just finished talking about how her daughter started her own, uh, or she had, I guess she gave her, Bernice, when she gave her trial sermon uh, for her ministry and what have you so it's right after that ends and then she picks up there talking about Martin III the sentence then there's Martin III commonly known by his family as Marty that's where we're picking up at context of white supremacy audio segment number two then there is Martin III commonly known by his family as Marty a very sensitive and obedient child at times he seemed the most melancholy and confused about losing his father, but I am happy that he did not grow up to be angry or hostile. Even in talking about James Earl Ray, the man who was convicted of killing his father, Marty says, I never hated him. I can't hate or hold bitterness against anybody. Maybe it's my religion or maybe my family background, but it's just not in me to hate. As the oldest boy... Marty was the one who bonded most with Martin. He traveled with him, occasionally marched with him, and played basketball and biked with him. In fact, I purchased similar bikes for both of them the Christmas before Martin was taken from us. I remember on the day of the funeral how little Marty, who was ten, sat on the edge of my bed and said, It just makes me so mad that I don't have a daddy. Sometimes I wonder which is worse, never to know one's father or to know and love him only to have him tragically snatched away. Even ten years after his father's death, on occasion Marty would take visitors down to the basement to share with them his most treasured possessions, tucked away in the bottom of a closet, objects that had belonged to Martin, a pair of denim jeans, a ministerial robe, a straw hat, a busted tan briefcase, and that purple bike, which still looked brand new. Marty longed for the experience of riding off on those bikes with his father. Even into adulthood, Marty has said that he has never understood why anyone would dislike his father enough to kill him. From a moral as well as a human view, I have never understood it either. Marty was named Martin III despite my objections. In the back of my mind, I could foresee the problems a son might encounter trying to match the exploits of a famous and anointed father. I worried that Marty would grow up suffering from depression over the loss of his father or be crushed by the burden of his name. Even as a small child, the name posed a problem. Marty and Yoki were among the first black children to integrate Spring Street Elementary, a public school in Atlanta. 
The day after enrolling, Marty told me that a little boy had walked up to him and said, What's your name? Martin Luther King III, Marty replied, Oh, your dad is the nigger preacher. Marty answered, The word is Negro. Despite his strength, I understood how the word hurt Marty. He knew it was an insult, and I am sure it was the kind of thing he became sensitized to. When he was about eight years old, he started playing football and baseball, and one Saturday morning I took him to football practice, and he said, Mommy, you see those big boys over there? I said, Yeah, what about them? He said, They came up to me and asked me what was my name, and I told them I didn't know. I asked him why he'd done that, although I knew why, because he believed they would be hostile to him and beat him up if he revealed his name. That just tore my heart out, understanding that Marty had a great name, but that it could also bring him pain. Even before Martin died, the teasing was too much for Marty, so after Martin's assassination, I felt the need to transfer Marty to a private school called Galloway, which was predominantly white and turned out to be a good experience for him. I transferred Dexter and Bernice there as well. At Galloway, Martin became captain of the basketball team and was very popular. The principal said that Marty would often lecture other students about the evils of smoking, drinking, and the use of drugs. At 16, Marty served as a page to Senator Edward Kennedy. This was the same time that Caroline Kennedy served as a summer intern for her uncle, and the job turned into a lasting friendship between him and Caroline and John Kennedy, Jr. In 1975, he graduated from Galloway, and one year later, while a student at Morehouse College at the age of 19, Marty served as a consultant to President Carter's election campaign. A few years later, he was a staff aide to Atlanta Mayor Andy Young. In 1979, Martin graduated from Morehouse like his father and grandfather before him. He received his B.A. in political science. Over time, he developed a passion for extending the social justice movement that his father and I had championed. He marched. He led protests. He went to jail but he also left little doubt that he was intent on following his own passions and being his own man, much to the surprise of some close to him who had concluded that it was only natural for him to choose the ministry as a career, like his father and his grandfather's. He went another way. He was the first of our children elected to public office. On June 9, 1986, he announced his candidacy to become a commissioner on the Fulton County Commission in Georgia. In explaining his decision, he said, I've been blessed to be able to travel all over the world and meet all types of people. The privilege of those kinds of experiences had helped him to see how important it is to give back to the community that helped develop him. He understood that in the 1960s, most of us could not be in the political arena. It would take years to accomplish things that today can be done with the stroke of a pen. He saw the political process as the most direct way to help massive numbers of people, whether with jobs, with health care, or with housing. This is why he opted to run. His association with Senator Ted Kennedy also fueled his desire to launch into politics. And in 1986, both Caroline Kennedy and John Kennedy Jr. campaigned for Martin III, who was elected a member of the Board of County Commissioners in a landslide, beating a Democrat who had served there for 30 years by an 8-to-1 margin. 
He served until 1993. The Fulton County Commission had about 35 department heads, almost all of them white males, but once elected a commissioner, Martin proved that in this virtually all-white arena, he was not going to be the invisible man. He worked hard to create the Department of Contract Compliance and Equal Employment to ensure that the commission had a diverse workforce in terms of leadership and also to ensure that people of color and women were able to gain government contracts through a system that had previously locked them out. When he came into office, probably fewer than 5% of the county's contracts went to women, small developers, or African-American businesses. It was the same problem I had confronted when building the center. I found that the best way to change low numbers of minority contracts was to tackle the numbers head-on and to demonstrate to both employers and workers that diversity, if given a chance, could be a win-win proposition for everyone. Martin did much the same thing, except from the inside. In 1987, he was named vice chairman of the National Labor Relations Committee of the National Association of County Officials. Another program he launched inside the commission was A Call to Manhood, which was designed to provide fathering and mentoring to young children who were displaced and at risk for becoming school dropouts or being thrust into the prison pipeline. So many young boys are without fathers to give them attention, so they get attention in other ways from gangs or drug dealers. Martin initiated rite-of-passage seminars for the youth and found them successful role models and tutors. When he left office as commissioner in 1993, both the contracting programs and a call to manhood stayed in place, a nice legacy. As time went on, I could see that Martin III had several deeply planted inbred movement values. If you engage in a serious conversation with him, you will see these values shining through. World peace, anti-poverty, non-violence, these are his concerns, and they are the three branches of the same tree. Like all my children, he has been involved in the King Center over the years, and at the center his passion was organizing youth workshops on nonviolence, which attracted young people, including gang members and other activists, from around the world. Keeping the spotlight on the poor is vital to Martin. He is steadfast in his belief that the plight of the poor, of children who go to bed hungry, of homeless families sleeping in parks and under bridges, of the sick who can't afford to buy their medication, must become central to our nation's political discourse and to our media. Martin III has a novel idea that I think would go a long way toward addressing poverty. He's looking at creative ways to revitalize Martin Luther King Jr. thoroughfares. All over America, he says, there are close to a thousand of those thoroughfares, and unfortunately, many of these streets bearing the name King are blighted. He applauds those politicians who led the way to name these avenues after his dad, but he is bothered that they do not follow through with funding for them. What a difference it would make if the government and business communities got behind a revitalization of these streets. With the right funding in these areas, people could have decent schools and housing so they could sustain themselves. This alone would help create a notable number of jobs and make a dent in unemployment. Unfortunately, so far, other political priorities have overshadowed this idea. 
Marty's beliefs have also led him to become an outspoken opponent to the death penalty. He is fond of saying, If we believed in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, most of us would be without eyes and without teeth. I'm also proud of his campaign to thwart the continuing tragic practices of police shootings of unarmed black men. In 1997, I was proud that he was unanimously elected the fourth president of the SCLC during the 40th anniversary of the civil rights organization Martin co-founded in 1957. As president, Martin III helped establish new SCLC chapters, led protests to change the design of the Georgia state flag, which still feature a large Confederate image, and to remove the Confederate flag from the statehouse grounds in South Carolina. He also held hearings and focused national attention on police brutality. At the 37th I Have a Dream anniversary on August 27, 2000, Martin III and New York activist Al Sharpton led a gathering of thousands at the Lincoln Memorial where they demanded an end to police brutality and racial profiling. I introduced both Martin and Al Sharpton at that gathering. The crowd grew enthusiastic as it became obvious that neither of those two were going to sugarcoat anything. Martin is somewhat quiet and soft-spoken, but his words flame with passion and power. He told the crowd that America has not fulfilled his father's vision for racial justice, and he took the police to task for too many cases of police brutality and too many fatal shootings of unarmed men. On the minds of many, there was the police shooting of Amadou Diallo. He was an unarmed immigrant, killed in a hail of 41 bullets the year before in New York City. At the rally, organizers focused attention on how unarmed black men were more likely to be shot by police than unarmed white men, how black men were too often randomly searched without cause, and how too often a routine traffic stop could turn fatal for blacks. Martin told the crowd that he was still awaiting the day when we can raise our children to respect police first and fear them last. He also seized the occasion of the I Have a Dream anniversary rally to hold public officials accountable, just as Martin and I always tried to do. The day before the gathering at the Lincoln Memorial, Martin III and Reverend Al Sharpton met with Attorney General Janet Reno and with top aides to President Clinton to demand that the federal government withhold funds from any police department that practiced racial profiling or showed a pattern of brutality. The tragedy of the 9-11 attacks scuttled that approach because fears of terrorism resulted in demands for more funding for, not more oversight of, police. Holding police accountable is not something Martin has given up on. It is a necessary change that is still a work in progress. In 2003, Martin co-sponsored the 40th anniversary of the historic March on Washington with human rights organizations from across the country. Before the media, he clarified his role. I know I can't be my father, he told them. But what I can do is to take the message that was the blueprint that he left for us, and I can share it with others and hopefully take the legacy to the next level. I was raised in a family dedicated to public service. It is only natural that I would feel compelled to continue the work. Why reinvent the wheel 
when it is clear that there is so much work to be done. If we can come anywhere close to what my father envisioned, I know we'll have a better nation and world. So if I had a dream, it would be to see that the vision that my father gave his life to achieve is manifested. I firmly believe everyone in America deserves a decent job with decent pay. Keeping the dream alive is not a mere slogan or headline for Martin. It has captivated him. He conceptualizes it, and in ways large and small continues to reshape and repackage its tenets of peace, justice, and fairness for the next generation. Sometimes he steps back into politics to achieve the goal. He is clear about his own style of leadership. He describes it this way, My leadership style is to try to build a coalition and not be confrontational unless I have to be. I try to build support among, first of all, my staff. If the staff doesn't agree, I try to hear out everyone before I make a decision. Although some leaders lead dictatorially, I believe you can lead in a coalescing way. When you disagree, you don't humiliate someone because you disagree. You want to hear their point, and then you want to bring them around. So, I try to use persuasion as a leadership tool and try to see the best in everyone. I want to bring the best out of everyone. I know that he thinks that today, where there are so many terrific and seemingly irresolvable problems, it is a time for new forms of leadership to emerge. For example, he challenges the business community to try putting people before profits by making livable wages and providing health care, all of which should be in the business's self-interest. To Martin III, workers' rights, such as a livable wage and health care, should be the headlights of a business's mission, not the taillights. On the whole, I believe that while carrying Martin's name has been difficult for Marty, he has not crumbled. He has worn it well. He often told me that he knows better than to try to do what his father did. Martin Luther King Jr. was a national leader at 27, on the cover of Time at 28. If Martin had to compare himself to his father, he often says he would have flunked. Actually failed miserably, is how he puts it. Instead, he wants God to help him enhance what his father did. April 4, the anniversary day of his father's assassination, usually saddens Marty. And though he's come to terms with it, he admitted to me, on that day for many years I would shed tears. Our father is gone, and because of the holiday and the many observances, it's like he's enshrined in time. He will be forever young, that is the one wonderful way of thinking that helped me get through it. He also told me, The sad thing for me and my siblings as adults is not having had the opportunity to have a conversation with him, and that's what we've probably missed. Those are the things that there's nothing you can do about. But the ten years that we were together were incredible. We all will have fond memories forever. What a feeling of comfort for me to know that Martin III is making a difference and paving his own way as his own man. Perhaps because he is the older son, he wants to protect people. He even felt that he was my protector. I take comfort in that, too. He has spent long evenings with me, 
patiently waiting in my bedroom until I finished my phone calls. He sought my advice on politics, love and marriage, business relationships, inner healing, whatever was in his heart. Even when he had his own home, he would come over most every night to check on me or just to stay with me. It often seemed like he had never left home. For that, people whispered about him being a mama's boy. It surprised me to hear that people did not know that my house, the one I raised all my children in, was now in a drug-infested part of the city, an area none of my critics would dare walk in, let alone live in. In fact, my house in Vine City was broken into twice. Once when I was at home, Martin happened not to be in the house, I fell asleep sitting up in my bed after reading some papers. I was briefly awoken by a noise and thought a picture had fallen, and I just went back to sleep. I discovered that a burglar had been there only when I woke up the next morning, and Pat, my beloved personal assistant, arrived and told me that a brick had been thrown through the living room window, which faced the front of the house. A walkie-talkie that had been in its charging station in the kitchen was missing. Only by the grace of God did I avoid being beaten, raped, or murdered. The police eventually caught the man who broke in. He was a drug addict and had sold the walkie-talkie to someone who ended up using it, which allowed the police to trace it back to the burglar. During the interrogation, the burglar apparently told the police he had actually stood over me for a spell, considering what to do with me. They discovered that he was responsible for the rapes and murders of three elderly women in the neighborhood. Why did he leave me unharmed? Maybe he recognized me from the pictures in the living room, or maybe he saw a picture of Martin and me in the bedroom. I know for sure that it was just not my time to die, which is to say, I was grateful that Marty would come to watch over me and put my safety before his own comfort or pleasure. Deep inside Martin III are the will and the strength to love unconditionally. We talk about this sometimes. He sincerely believes, much as both Martin and I, and of course much like his granddaddy, Daddy King, believed, that love is the antidote to racism and self-hatred. His source of love that springs forth outward begins within, Martin likes to say. People really have to develop a true love for themselves. It helps to take account of oneself by writing down all the bad and good qualities you have and strive to eliminate the bad. Then say, even though I have those problems, I love me. He feels that you really have to love yourself before you can even begin to love other people. In 1990, he showed his ability to correct a wrong when he made a disparaging remark about homosexuals. After meeting the gay rights leaders, he apologized and referred to his words as uninformed and insensitive. Just imagine a hot sunny day. Martin and me sitting in lawn chairs in our backyard, sipping lemonade and chatting about our children as proud parents do. I could see Martin and me scrambling to conclude what qualities our eldest son received from each of us. I think we would conclude that in some ways he resembles both of us. Tender-hearted, passionate, determined, patient. And even with the weight of carrying the king name, he has found a way to achieve inner peace and outer strength as he faces the ups and downs of trying to advance the causes he was born and bred on, but doing things his own way. He has taken the advice I offer to all my children, 
not to become a prisoner of the king name, but rather to always be your own best self. Dexter, named after the first church Martin pastored, was only seven years old when his father was murdered. He was always a deep thinker, prone to analyzing instead of accepting. Over and over in the aftermath of his father's murder, he would ask, Why did my daddy die? How did he die? What's going to happen to the bad people who shot him? Sometimes I felt as though he was asking the same questions repeatedly to get attention. Being the second son and the third child can make it hard to find one's place in a family. But it turns out he has, and always had, such an analytical mind. His sense of logic and administration, which he used to head the King's Center, was demonstrated at an early age. At the Galloway School, he did very well in math. In fact, his elementary school math teacher said he had never worked with a child like Dexter, who would give up his lunch just to come in and work on math problems. At around age 12, he started his own photography business. He went to the Southern Rural Action Project, which was designed to help poor rural people, but Dexter attended the program one summer, and they offered him a photography course. He became a very good photographer. He took pictures for weddings and graduations and for different groups, such as the Institute on Nonviolence at the King Center. But being so young, he wasn't yet mature enough to understand how success can turn into a nightmare. Daddy King began announcing Dexter's picture-taking business from the pulpit. Very soon, he had far more orders than he could handle and often didn't deliver the pictures quickly enough to satisfy the demand. It taught him a lesson, though, about the peril of moving too far too fast. Dexter and his cousin, Isaac Ferris, used to work together. They'd sit around and throw around big terms like diversification, but they didn't know what they were doing. They made a little sign that read K and F Sound Productions, which later became a rather sophisticated music production company. As a student at Morehouse College, Dexter would hire himself out as a disc jockey. He purchased some of the best equipment money could buy for his enterprises. At a certain point, though, he was spending too much time on his business ventures and not enough on his schoolwork. I tried to convince him to close down his extracurricular activities. I thought they might be the reason he wasn't performing well in his studies at Morehouse, a prestigious, historically black private school for men in Atlanta. Four generations of kings had graduated from Morehouse. Dexter's maternal great-granddaddy, Reverend A.D. Williams, in the class of 1898. His grandfather, Martin Luther King, Sr., class of 1930. Martin, who enrolled at 15 and graduated in 1948. Dexter's uncle, A.D., who graduated in 1959. And Martin III, who graduated with the class of 1979. Dexter, however, eventually dropped out. He had problems concentrating and focusing on his studies. He could read something over and over and still not understand it. He was soon diagnosed as having Attention Deficit Disorder, or ADD, a condition that often makes it impossible to function in a controlled environment one that does not leave room for wandering around. Doctors then were prescribing Ritalin to control ADD, 
which I wouldn't allow. I didn't want my son drugged. I had also read that some medications could produce symptoms worse than the diagnosis. In any event, Dexter felt the shame and the burden of being the son of Martin Luther King Jr. and not excelling. He left Morehouse and went back to DJing. Music gave him meaning and a sense of well-being, but the exit from Morehouse also represented a break with a proud tradition of Morehouse graduates in the family, and this resulted in Dexter feeling like a black sheep, at least for a while. One summer, he took a job working in a funeral home. He and his cousin started talking big. They said they were going to buy up a rundown funeral home right off Auburn Avenue and refurbish it. When he came home from work, he would tell us all about his experiences with dead people in the funeral home. He would try to sneak up behind me and put his hands on me, and I would tell him, don't you put your hands on me after coming home from a funeral home. It was all in fun, though, and another way that Dexter coped with his grief and overcame his fear of death. In 1982, he went to work for the Atlanta Police Department, and I, as a staunch advocate of nonviolence, faced a dilemma. Having a policeman with a gun in my house. This was something I did not allow, so Dexter ended up keeping his gun in the car. He had always wanted to be a police officer. When he was in high school, he actually told the kids that he was a cop. He bought himself a cap that looked like a policeman's cap and some badges, and the kids believed him. In the mid-1980s, he began to pour his passion for musical production and organization into the King Center. He also spent hours wrestling with the thorny issues of how to protect his father's legacy, to ensure that it was not exploited, and to endow resources for future generations. In addition, he hoped to produce more resources, eventually allowing us to contribute to other grassroots organizations. He had innovative ideas about using new technology to tell our story and promote the Kingian nonviolent philosophy. In the late 1980s, I began to contemplate successorship. Too many leaders do not train anyone to succeed them, and this is why there's often so much confusion when a leader is incapacitated or dies. I felt that it would take time to train whomever I put in place to head the center. Besides, I always felt that young people ought to be trained for leadership. Yet even as I wanted to let go, it was difficult to actually do so. Here again was the inner tug of war between Mrs. King, the institutional parent, and Coretta, the mother of flesh-and-blood children, whom I innately and unconditionally loved and supported. In a real sense, I gave birth to both, the institution, with the help of many midwives, and my natural children, through the love Martin and I shared. Couldn't I hang on to both, to all, to everything? Of course, the answer was no. As founder, president, and CEO of the center, I knew it had come time for me to decrease my role and allow my children to increase theirs. Subliminally, I knew they could not assert themselves as long as I remained a strong presence, but it was quite a challenge to begin letting go. Even understanding that this task would go to one of our four children did not make the decision easier. 
I'm the kind of person who likes to know exactly what's going to happen, especially in a matter as serious as heading the center. I have to have a clear picture of the outcome. If I can't see my way clearly, I often hesitate. Some would say procrastinate. After much prayer, I felt the urgency to step out and proceed on faith. I let my children know how serious I was about the center having an orderly line of succession. In the summer of 1988, I arranged for all of us to meet in a cabin in the northeast Georgia mountains. I picked the location for its isolation. We did not need interruptions. We all sat in a circle, and I asked each sibling about his or her interest in taking this role. Yolanda, who was well on her way to a successful acting career, said, I'll do it if I have to, but I sure hope I won't. Martin who was contemplating a political future, said, I guess if I had to, but I really don't know. Bernice, who was pursuing her doctorate of law and master of divinity, said, I'll handle a part of it if I have to. Then everyone looked at Dexter, who we all agreed had the best business sense of the siblings. He had a vision and a plan for the center, which at that time employed 60 people and managed a few million in finances. Dexter, at 28 years old, accepted the responsibility. On April 4, 1989, 21 years to the date after Martin's assassination, the King Board and I held a five-hour installation service. Appropriately, the installation was carried out at Ebenezer, a church filled with our family's history, both joyous and painful. People came from everywhere to celebrate. Motown founder Barry Gordy attended and donated tapes of Martin's best-known speeches. Jennifer Holliday sang. Adam Clayton Powell IV came, along with many other daughters and sons of the movement. In his installation speech, Dexter announced ambitious plans that included training 100,000 activists around the world in Martin Luther King's philosophy and methodology of nonviolence, and to build a $40 million endowment within the next decade. But six months later, Dexter resigned. Some blamed me for not getting out of the way. Others blamed Dexter for getting in the way. Many other factors, including consistently negative press, especially in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, contributed to this disappointing equation. But the major problem was a flawed structure. The board made Dexter the president, I was the CEO, and the Reverend Barbara Skinner was the chief operating officer. Then there was the board chairman and an oversight committee. Dexter soon felt he was sandwiched between competing personalities. He asked for complete authority from the board but never received it. There were also deep entrenched factions on the board. Many of the members were veterans of the civil rights movement. They would not embrace Dexter, who counted hip-hop artists among his good friends and wanted to cater to a younger generation. Undercurrents of talk suggested that he did not have the proper educational credentials to command respect as president. Some thought he needed to be more diplomatic. Others wanted him to be a figurehead. In the end, he felt betrayed and disillusioned. The press reported that we were at war, which was not exactly true. After Dexter left, I went back to my being president and CEO 
and appointed Dr. Cleveland Denard, the chief operating officer. Denard, a civil rights veteran, had served as president of Atlanta University for seven years and had earned respect as a management consultant. He was a member of our church, a good friend and supporter, and he agreed to be with us through our reorganization. But five years after the reorganization, I ended up with the same dilemma. Who would lead the center into the next generation? It was now 1994. Once again, we looked to Dexter. If he agreed to come back, we thought, then this time things would be different. I didn't know how much he had changed, but I knew I had. Dexter still burned with the same vision, and he had a holistic understanding of how the King entities, the center, the foundation, and the estate, could work together and not against one another. There were some actions I had to take to make this work. I agreed to take the title of founder. I would stay on the board but not be an officer. As long as I was in a prominent position, I realized people would not deal with Dexter. They would go around him to talk to me. This time around, when people came to me, I would tell them I was not in charge and would send them to Dexter. When I went to the board to propose Dexter's return, there was resistance. I was sympathetic to their concerns that they have the right leadership. We had quite a reputation at the King Center for not getting the right people. But I reiterated the importance of institutionalizing Martin's legacy and restated my support for Dexter. Finally, the board agreed that there should never be a time when a King family member did not lead the center. I had to get the young people prepared. I made it clear that, my personal feelings notwithstanding, I needed to step aside before I became too advanced in years, unable to focus, to be alert, or get around. This time, the board seemed to sense that we had reached a point at which change had to come. During a very emotional meeting in October 1994, Dexter was voted in as CEO. The board made very positive statements about him and the future-looking leadership he represented. They thanked me for my dedication while embracing him. It was virtually a complete turnaround. The experience was so meaningful and humbling for Dexter that he broke down and cried. Later he confided in me that the tears were an embarrassment. Reassuring him, I said, Dexter, the tears helped people see you as a human being. You have feelings just like everybody else. Maybe people see you as being indifferent or cold or unfeeling, but now they see you in a different light. And that will wrap this week's segment of the book study session, My Life, My Love, My Legacy. I was looking. Uh, Dr. Bernice King, uh, one of uh, Mrs. King's other children, she is the current uh, CEO of the King Center in Atlanta. I was just checking on that uh, as the segment was concluding. Uh, If folks have commentary, thoughts that they would like to share, feel free. Chime in. The number 641 Seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six 
if you would like to participate. Uh, I'm looking. I think we should be done next week, I think. Uh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not, uh, not sure. We'll have to see. If we're not done next week, we will be very, very close. But I think we could be, uh, we could be all done. I'll know for sure uh, once I get to look at the audiobook again. Anywho, uh, folks who dialed in who have a hand up, if you have commentary you would like uh, to share, uh, line should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, I think, well, one thing that I was thinking about um, in kind of just looking at the entire text, I don't really have as much commentary specifically about the individual children. I think that um, that they're just a, a family, and that's kind of what children are going to do to expect that all the children would have become, you know, other Dr. Kings. Is, that's not how it happens. Um, children do their own thing. Um, but I think the most interesting thing I heard her say in this section was that uh, her home, the area that her home was in, uh, was no longer like a safe place and that her home had been broken into several times. And the reason I find that interesting is because I feel at some point when, if if logic is what you are following, if uh, you can think clearly, um, you don't have like a certain, you you just don't have things that you have to believe in more than the truth, like what you can see and like putting one and one together. I think they would have it would have been beneficial to hear a little bit more dialogue around that because if the why, you know, she didn't even talk about why the area um, around her home wasn't safe anymore. What had happened or really speaking honestly about the environment around the King Center, um, just things like that. And I think spending a little bit more time talking about racism or white supremacy would have been just more constructive for me in the text. And um, in saying that, and I think this part, you know, this might be more for her children than it is really for all of the readers, but I'm not even so sure because it seems like she'd be hearing a little bit of dirty laundry. Like, you know, <laughs> you don't want your mom to tell everybody, but... Okay. I would need just a little bit more about that, just because I think it would have it would force her to speak a little bit more about the system of white supremacy to say, well, one time this area was good, maybe jobs moved out or introduced, you know, just to speak honestly about what she was observing if she was in one spot for so long and to talk about what happened. Um, that's it for now. So I thank you for listening. Indeed, indeed. I was thinking that too. Like, if I was one of the children being discussed here, I don't know if I would. I don't know how I'd feel about her <laughs> telling the world about that time I played a prostitute in my childhood uh, theater experience. But yeah. Anywho, uh, other folks who dialed in who have a hand up, if you have commentary, uh, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, right on, Miss Emmy. Uh, I was going in that direction also. Uh, I'll just go through my notes. Uh, I have here, number one, the objective thing to switch from countering racism, white supremacy, to comfortably coping with racism, white supremacy, you know, through uh, the the quote-unquote electoral process, which is code for refined racism, 
uh, you know, everything comes up, comes up uh, white supremacy uh, when it comes to uh, white people being in charge of things. I don't care if it's quote unquote Christian church, uh, 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 becoming a, uh, uh, becoming a elected official, it doesn't make a difference. But it's, it uh, it seemed to not just Mrs. King, but uh, uh, the overall efforts. And uh, I would say the usual suspects of, of very uh, very cunning on to persuade uh, their victims into uh, going into uh, levels of confusion that they would like them to go into. And that was taking part a lot in the 70s and the 80s uh, uh, during that time. Uh, number two, uh, <laughs> she's mentioning about, and it, this, this kind of like gives more and more evidence if someone would like to know on who's more confused on the global system of racist white supremacy, white people or their victims. Uh, we, can, we can talk about the end results the results of racist white supremacy, which is poverty, uh, 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 no peace, uh, you know, and, and on down the line in the list, <laughs> but we don't know how that, how that comes up. What, what is the problem that brings that about? Uh, uh, and and, and uh, what it is and how it works, I put it that way. And all of that she was talking about uh, earlier in the second reading it comes down to the global system of racism, white supremacy. You, you're not going to have anything called peace. And that is in existence. Duh. You know, as far as, far as that concern. Uh, number three, uh, and, and, and just by me saying that I have number three, Dr. King, uh, in, my, in, in my understanding of studies, never considered public office, quote unquote, whatever that means. You know, uh, he was uh, attempting to impose uh, an experiment, and I and I and I adopted this from Dr. Welsing. Attempted to impose an experiment. He had a hypothesis. Uh, if I mix "quote unquote" love with with uh, with uh, 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 white supremacy, I would come up with justice. And uh, you know, sometimes with a scientist uh, uh, going about the means of, and he was courageous in doing it. Uh, it, it, it sometimes with a scientist, it, it, the experiment, uh, is not, uh, successful. And sometimes it even blows up in the person's face and they get harmed. And we all know that's what happened with Dr. King. Uh, moving on, uh, number four, uh, I have here what motivated non-white people to think that their problems can be solved by joining with the racists in their racist politics. You know, uh, that, that's just a thought that I had, you know, and, and I'm not saying just because Mrs. King was talking about, talking about that because it is a very popular, uh, uh, quote unquote understanding that we have nowadays that, uh, maybe if we can, if, if I can study, study the political process and, and really join in and everything, then, then, uh, then, you know, this, I, I guess the thought of mind that the problem would be solved. And I'm saying, ugh, it's not even, it doesn't even make any logical sense uh, in, in my understanding of things. Uh, number five, uh, because, and I'm, and I'm basically, my notes were based on what I heard through, through the reading, and something was mentioned about, here's that, here's that cliche, holding, holding someone accountable, 
holding someone. And I ask you, powerless people cannot hold accountable uh, a powerful people. That, it, that just make, doesn't make any sense at all. It's not even logical sense at all. Uh, uh, and and uh, well, I, well, let me let me take an inhale because it sounds like I'm getting frustrated. <laughs> but, but but actually, it's just a you know, I keep hearing that over and over again. Uh, and like I said, it's not just uh, uh, hearing it from uh, Mrs. King's uh, uh, reading, but it's a popular cliche: hold this particular person or hold this group accountable. And and we're the most powerless, pitiful people. Uh, that exists on the planet. Uh, number six, inviting non-white people to participate in their political process. Uh, it works dramatically. I have here. You, it, it, it has a dramatic effect on uh, a successful effect uh, 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 against uh, uh, solving against solving the system of racism and white supremacy. And last but not least, uh, Gandhi, Dr. King. Uh, of that, like of uh, the whole "quote unquote" nonviolent. That's the, I, I, I didn't I didn't name it, but that that's what they call it: nonviolent uh, "quote unquote" movement. They were not successful. The problem is still here. Uh, I don't see where it even. Uh, uh, although there's no, there's no such thing as slowing something down, either it's going or it's stopping. One or the other. There's no in between. There's no process like Mr. Fuller. Uh, 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 has stated uh, uh, it wasn't successful. And, and unfortunately, though, there's a lot of people who are who are, are into nostalgia, the whole idea about, oh, I remember the days about the movement and my participation in it. Oh, it was such glorious days and blah, 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 you know, that sort of thing like that. And uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with solving the problem. And uh, I, I think I think if we just focus solely on what is what is going to take, uh, and primarily with our with, with our behavior for one thing, and our means of ways of uh, 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 being each other's company, not being each other's company, and and being constructive, uh, that has more to do with solving the problem as opposed to personalities, and uh, you know nostalgia and all of that kind of stuff. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Right on, right on. I encourage, uh, I do that myself and encourage it. If you feel like you might be getting a little wound up, get a little breath, then you can uh, get back at it. <laughs> and uh, Just uh, be watching, you know, how you sound, because I know all of us, we can get excited sometimes talking about uh, the system of white supremacy. Other folks uh, who dialed in who had a hand up, uh, do they have commentary they wanted to, to share? Anybody that we missed have commentary? I reckon folks are, are good for the time being. Uh, some of the things that stood out, I thought great points uh, everyone made uh, during the first segment. Uh, I was also thinking like, you know, racist, one of the things that they like major things that they do in terms of practicing white terrorism uh, when a black person dies, particularly a black person who like invested their time and energy in working against white supremacy, they will go to work like, you know, totally uh, distorting and lying about what they did and what their views were and what have you. So I can totally understand uh, Mrs. King, uh, their children, 
uh, placing great importance on saying, you know, we're going to protect my husband slash our father, uh, you know, to make sure that people are not talking crazy or just trying to use and exploit his message or distort, you know, uh, his message and and what he was about. I I totally uh, understand that. And I was even thinking uh, for a while, like, eh. So you get, I think, retired firefighter during the last segment. I think he referenced it as uh, a shrine to her husband, uh, the King Center. I was thinking even, you know, if that's uh, to a large degree, let's say that's accurate. You know, they do some other events and other things like that. But let's say to a large degree, that's what it is, uh, just for argument's sake. Even if that's so, if, you know, hey, you can you can get a center constructed where, you know, you're able to employ makes black people have a job. Uh, you can employ yourself where you have a job uh, and you're able to devote time and energy and be paid to devote time and energy uh, to talking about your father and how he tried to work against racism. Hey, <laughs> I'm not mad at you. <laughs> not that anyone here sounded like they were upset about that, but I, I was thinking about that as the second portion was concluding. Cause that is such a major uh, means such a major uh, aspect of how white people terrorize uh, and confuse us really uh, some of the other uh, notes that stood out during the second portion of the text I was curious because this book right like it just was published this year 2017 but uh, it was told to Reverend Dr. Barbara Reynolds she said this book was done Mrs. King passed away in 2006 she said this book was done before she passed uh, it just got held up uh, when she passed, it got held up in, chim- in terms of wrangling in the estate and attorneys and all that stuff. So I guess it took 10, 11 years uh, to get everything uh, straight so that they could go ahead and publish the book. Uh, but I'd be curious in terms of uh, the motivation um, that went into the book, what they chose to talk about, what they chose not to talk about. Like, I'd just be really curious in terms of what some of those motivating factors were. Uh, for this text. I've not heard uh, Dr. Reynolds speak about the book in in depth, so I'll check that out before we wrap it up just for my own uh, curiosity's sake. Um, Let's see, some of the other things specifically from the text that I jotted down, making sure I'm not missing notes. Okay. Uh, the, The not hating white people, I think retired firefighter was talking about that after the first audio segment concluded, and then as soon as we started the second audio segment, that came up immediately uh, where she's, uh, she says that, uh, I think this was Martin the third. Yeah, this is Marty the third saying, even talking about James Earl Ray, the man who was convicted of killing his father. Marty says, I never hated him. It just seems like that's such a, a, a critical aspect uh, and really religion of white supremacy connected with this nonviolence. I talked about that before, how, you know, they link very nicely, could be one and the same, uh, but I I can totally understand how racists, they would want us to have this way of thinking. You know, any random race soldier can come and kill me, my family, brutalize us, uh, heap any sort of, uh, you know, psychic behavior uh, and and abusive conduct, heap it on us. And I'm not going to hate him. In fact, I'm going to, you know, invest my life uh, in trying to get that person to love me like that that is exactly how racists would want that's how they would maintain control of the universe forever uh in my opinion uh next uh the same theme some of the exact same things that we talked about in this book even even when i'm reading books that i don't particularly care for i still try to improve my reading skills and doing some of the things that you all talked about in terms of paying attention to to patterns and themes that have come up over the course of the book when she's talking about her children we spent all that time talking about 
uh, the war against black children uh, in white education systems. And that's K through like post-grad uh, where she says Marty and Yoki, Yoki were among the first black children to integrate Spring Street Elementary, a public school in Atlanta. The day after enrolling, Marty told me that a little boy had walked up to him and said, what's your name? Martin Luther King third. Marty replied, oh, your daddy's the nigger preacher. This is little white boys. And little black boys one day holding hands together, right? I mean, and that, like I said, we've seen that. That seems to be the goal, like hanging out, spending time with white people uh, in various capacities, whether it's the Kennedys or these whites in Europe, the white guy she dated in college. It just seems like it seems like that is such a uh, central, repeated aspect of the text uh, and I think that's just how we've been trained to respond to racism, white supremacy. If we can have acceptance, validation from a white person, if we can have one or three uh, white pals or sexual partners, that that right there is showing that racism is almost dead. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are greatly confused, greatly confused about racism. And, and this sort of content, you know, promotes the confusion further. Uh, continuing. Uh, she says, uh, little bit later in the chapter she says uh, oh she's talking about marty when he uh at first he announced that he was going to run uh for county commissioner in georgia i really uh appreciated him trying to do some of the th- same things that she talked about when she was getting the king center established and saying that i'm going to make sure that black contractors are getting jobs black people that do construction work and what have you are not being locked out of these projects and uh martin luther marty the third as she calls him uh being taking that same perspective i'm going to get this job and see you know what i can do to help black people in georgia get jobs get contracts get money outstanding black self-respect right there and i my view would be racist. They tend to greatly oppose those sorts of efforts. Anytime black people are trying to particularly help other black people, you're not just doing something constructive. You're doing something that's actually going to benefit other black people. Like, Oh man, we need to stomp on that with both feet. Like immediately. Um, let's see some of the other things that stood out. Yeah. This, the second section, I wasn't sure. I think Emmy asked that question about, you know, was this section intended, intended, uh, for her children or was this for everybody a little bit of both uh, it definitely had that feel like this might have been something that she was sharing with her uh, children uh, type of thing I think even Robin Wisconsin he was talking about some of the intimate uh, depictions that we got of their uh, family life and I guess kind of firefighter was saying that like I don't know how I would feel about uh, having all this disclosed to uh, a lot of white readers in particular but be that as it may uh, I also noted the the portion where she uh, she talked about how many of the thoroughfares streets that are named uh, after Dr. King uh, have are just dilapidated. They have, you know, run down properties and blight and uh, they are not, you know, spots where, oh, my gosh, everything looks great and refurbished and sparkling new businesses owned by black people like that has not been my experience uh in uh in this part of the world where streets that are named after dr king and and even in atlanta uh the streets that bear his name it's the exact same thing and that's by racist design uh in my opinion uh just showing the frame particularly when you put that in context i think 
the abuse that Dr. King suffered while he was alive, the continued attacks against him in death, and then we'll mar uh, any street or what have you that's got his name. Uh, we'll just make sure that the black people that stay there uh, have no resources, are in total abject poverty, and you know, doing everything that victims do when they get frustrated, turning on each other, committing violence against other black people. We'll just make that a cliche so that people can predict and make jokes that that's what's going to be happening on any street named after that nigger king. Uh, that's exactly the way racists think, in my view. Uh, continuing, uh, let's see, when she's talk, uh, when she, I didn't know what to say, particularly given this week when she, uh, when she says as president uh, of the SCLC, Martin III helped establish uh, new SCLC chapters, led protests to change the design of the Georgia state flag, which still featured a large Confederate image, and to remove the Confederate flag from the state house grounds in South Carolina. Apparently, he failed in that campaign because it took, you know, up until recently <laughs> with everything that happened with Dylan Storm Roof for them to take the Confederate flag from the uh, state house grounds in South Carolina, but just showing. Uh, the years and years and years and years of effort and protest uh, about and these again symbols uh, very similar I, I made that comparison earlier some of you all were talking about that as well symbols uh, you know you, you get a, a, a street named after Dr. King or you, you put a building up and you name it after this black person or what have you uh, or you do the same thing with racists you put up you know 15 20 statues to these racists or building or bridge or whatever uh, it's going to be uh, these statues and what have you are not solving the problem. Uh, I talked about that before, and a lot of times we get confused and we'll invest so much energy and have people dying and going to jail and everything else uh, to get this flag taken down. And, you know, that's not solving any tangible problems at all. I just wrote about that uh, for Atlanta Black Star. Uh, last few things I'll get in, then I'll double check and, and see if folks have anything else that they would, would like to share. Uh, and it came through again. It came through again uh, where she says later on in the text, she says, uh, Martin, the uh, third, this deep inside Martin, the third are the will and the strength to love unconditionally. We talk about this sometimes. He sincerely believes much as both Martin and I and, of course, much like his granddaddy, Daddy King, believe that love is the antidote to racism and self-hatred that. It just does not make logical sense. I think I referenced that before, uh, where a lot of times we just use a lot of rhetoric uh, in terms of how we uh, talk about and understand racism, white supremacy. And I don't even know what that means. I couldn't even begin to explain the mechanics. Like, I don't have children, but if I had a child and they said love, uh, they're reading this, right? Okay, so, okay, love is the antidote to racism and self-hatred. So what does that mean? I have no idea. I could not even begin uh, to explain it, to demonstrate no idea at all. Uh, and we just got to be very, very careful when we have conversations on racism, white supremacy, because a lot of times this is what it sounds like. It is not a specific detailed plan to solve problems, particularly to solve problems that black people have because of whites practicing white supremacy to solve that problem permanently and specifically love over, or is the antidote to racism does not solve that problem unless I am misinformed. Uh, did anybody have anything else they wanted to get in before we get ready to wrap uh, this week's session? Can I be heard? Yes, Amy. I also uh, wanted to comment on that the children were going to private schools that were primarily white and I feel like that's just like a word play. If they're primarily white and they're private, they're more than likely white owned. And I don't know a whole lot about Atlanta, but I know if you have Morehouse 
and you have Spelman and you, you know, I feel like it's similar to the DMV area. There has to be uh, affluent black people there, some black money someplace, maybe not where she's living, but uh, like exactly on her street, but someplace somewhere there's like a, at least a little enclave. Um, and so I find it just a little hard to believe that with the black colleges there, that there isn't like a black private school for, for, you know, for each grade or for each you know, group of grades. And so I was like, why send them to the white schools? Um, and I really, like, I, my conclusion is that they just really love white people. Like, I'm not even, that's just what it is. I genuinely, at this point, like, what I'm deriving is that they really love white people more than black people. And the whole the conversation is, let us in, please, we're really not that bad. You just got to see but we really, 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 really like you all and we want, you know, to be around you. And that's pretty much, um, like, we can prove ourselves. Cause it's like any opportunity I feel that she's pointed out in the text where you could do things, you know, with black people. Like, I remember even very early, early on in the text, um, this is when uh, Dr. King was still alive. I'm forgetting the other black man's name. He wanted to help her. He wanted to, do, I think, get her a personal secretary or somebody to help her out because she was, she had just had the babies and she was trying to help Dr. King out a lot. She was a little stressed, and he offered to get her a secretary. And Dr. King was like, no, you can't, no. So he didn't do it. And his reasoning for not doing it, he didn't want people to say that they were living high on the horse or something like that, like that they had a whole lot of money. But then every time you look up, they're taking trips to Bahamas and Jamaica. So I'm trying to figure out that looks like you have more money than if you have someone help you take care of the baby. So I'm not really sure. Like, the stuff is not adding up to me. But in the same breath, it was so easy to ask white men to help anytime. Any Like, he had no problem if she called up this white man anytime and was like, hey, I need some help. And this white man was like, let me see what I could do. And I just feel like there's, like, a more respect for white people than black people. Uh, I also felt that way when she put her child in the white acting school or whatever it was. You can't pay me to believe that there aren't black creative people all over Atlanta, even then, who had their own little, like, startups and stuff like that, who may not have had the space but had the talent and could have taught her child a whole bunch of acting skills. I even wondered if Ms. Rashad had thought about that, because I know, like, she comes from an entire family of creative people who like teach creative things one's an actor one's a singer or a dancer like you know that kind of stuff and so my my takeaway is really that it's without it would have been great if she you know had done that level of introspection and wanted to be that revealing um but if not i feel like i'm reading it within the text and between the lines anyway that the respect really is for the white people and the black people were just um maybe she believes in that talented tense kind of thing because even when she talked about how the street it was like the words that she used, like her street now is run over with thugs, drug users, and rapists. And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like, all of these people are black people. They're, they couldn't be black people who are just, you know, robbing you because they need money. It has to be that they're rapists and all this stuff. But then she followed up saying that the cops said that he raped some elderly woman but didn't rape her and all that. I don't know. I'd even want to check that out because I don't know. Maybe he was high when he said it. I don't know. Um, but that's just kind of like one of the things that uh, – that I feel in the tag, so thank you. Dang. It doesn't uh it doesn't count for anything four generations at Morehouse. Uh that's, you know, predominantly historically a black institution. No. That that dang. Dang. Yeah. 
And here's why, because they had scholarships. So it benefited those colleges to have them go there so that they could have these legacies and lineages and all that kind of stuff. But if you're paying for the private school, like maybe the kids got scholarships there, but I don't think so. So, I mean, her money, their money, money that they're, you know, lobbying for and all that kind of stuff went to these white schools. Now, if they paid for Morehouse, so Morehouse is receiving money that I guess. But as far as I understand, these individuals received scholarships. Morehouse and Selma didn't make money off of that. Hmm. And they weren't first choices for all the children either. Dang. There's there's definitely a uh, undeniable component of the uh, white validation and and a, it seems like a very high value uh, placed on uh, acceptance and having some sort of contact with whites. Uh, it just seems like there's a very high pl- value placed on that throughout the text uh, for generations, even influencing you know with the uh, children's uh, schooling choices where she uh, gives the detail about, I think it was Marty where he was working with uh, Senator Kennedy's uh, offspring and ended up working, uh, being one of his assistants and what have you. I mean, just, wow. Lots of uh, close contact, lifelong, it seems (laughs) contact and relationships with these white people that other folks have uh, commentary they wanted to get in. Well, uh, I was just listening to the, the conversation and, uh, I would say that uh, uh, that's that's I would think that's the difference between uh, uh, as personalities as uh, uh, maybe political thought uh, between uh, uh, Coretta Scott Coretta Scott King and her husband uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King uh, from my studies on what he was attempting to do and in some cases actually doing and saying that uh, he was going to eliminate a whole lot of white people uh, (laughs) from not wanting to be around him, uh, all up to the president of the United States at the time, who I think uh, indirectly participated in his death. Uh, And similar to uh, Mrs. King, uh, Betty Shabazz basically uh, did some similar things with, with the children. Uh, uh, but in her case, uh, she, I think she had to do, I'm talking about Mrs. Shabazz. She had to do what she had to do because they were still attempting to kill both her and her children. The nation of not, not necessarily the nation of Islam, but they were, they were, uh, uh, you know, they they weren't really. I don't think they really would finish just killing Malcolm X. Uh, so, out of fear, uh, she did what she uh, thought was best interest by moving her her and the children up more further in the northeastern part of, of this part of the world uh, for uh, some kind of safety. And they were were around a whole lot of white people through most of their quote unquote formative years. Uh, maybe. Maybe something similar with the same reason reasoning on why uh, Mrs. King uh, did what she did with with the children, uh, but also from the situation of I just think personality wise that and and also what she was able to share uh, uh, with her children is why they had problems with those with with 
with that type of uh, situation as far as schools or uh, always cohabiting, cohabiting with a whole lot of white people because certainly in Atlanta, you've been to Atlanta, there's, there's enough black people to be around of all different uh, levels of uh, income, personality-wise, that, uh, you know, you know, but uh, that's, that's how I think about it, you know, as far as the difference between her and her husband. Yeah, I have, I can attest in Atlanta, that is one of the locations, if you uh, that's one of the few locations that I've been to in this part of the world. If you did not want to see white people, you absolutely could structure your day in Atlanta. So where you will have a very low likelihood uh, of seeing any white people, uh, if you don't want to. So yeah, <laughs> so, uh, that is a unique environment. As for the housing thing, I think Emmy brought that up as well. Like, uh, she, when she talked about living in Vine city, I've been there. I think that's uh, close to like downtown part of, uh, Atlanta, uh, close to, uh, where the Georgia dome is. She said, uh, when she talked about her house being broken in twice and, you know, talking about all the crime in the area, I think, uh, we talked about the Atlanta child murders, so-called on this program, uh, a number of times, uh, I think at least two, if not more of the children that were, uh, victims in that case were taken from that, uh, area. I was a little bit surprised that that wasn't mentioned in the book. Cause I think she would have, uh, or I don't think it, she, I mean, that's fact she did live. Uh, in the Atlanta area while that was happening in the late 1970s and early 1980s, but be that as it may. Um, yeah, I think with, with the whole Vine City thing, I'm not sure if she was staying there um, just as, you know, this is this is the house that I had. I'm just going to stay here. I'm not going to move. There certainly are a lot of affluent, what they call affluent black people in Atlanta, black people that do have money and, you know, black people that have more money kind of having their little enclaves here and there. They absolutely have that in Atlanta. And it would seem like she could have uh, easily uh, got such a spot and, you know, been chilling and, and been in a lower crime area. So I don't know. She might have had some motivation, some other reasoning as to why she wanted to to stay uh, to stay in that spot in uh, Vine City. But and again, white whites most to blame uh, with that sort of uh, thing happening uh, to, again, exactly as I stated, with the violence on uh, streets named after MLK, deprive black people of resources, terrorize them, and will just, you know, stuff them in this area and allow them to take their frustrations out on each other. And then we'll add in, you know, some poisons and toxins for good measure, make sure that, you know, they have a good time killing each other. Standard operating procedure. Anybody else have commentary they want to make sure they get in? Also, she she may have wanted wanted to uh, stay close to the center, mm. as far as her place of residence. Uh, that I I, I would say the the way she took a lot of pride into into that uh, that institution, uh, I, I I'm pretty sure that may have been one of the reasons why she never did think about, or, or at least didn't put in this book anyway, not not as of yet, uh, about moving somewhere else. You know, that sort of thing, because people that's in that type of situation want to be by that particular business. You know, she keeps giving metaphors like I'm giving birth to this business and the babies or so and so and so. And she was always overseeing everything. So that that seemed to me that she was very, very much committed to that center and probably wanted to be close to it as far as residence wise good point she she calls it one of her children uh repeatedly uh in the book that metaphor and uh vine city is is uh 
for uh, it's probably about a, a you could walk from Vine City to the King Sitter in less than an hour. Okay, it's not a mm-hmm. leisurely, but I mean, mm-hmm. if we're talking drive, oh yeah, that's a quick drive. Uh, it's that's nothing to get from Vine City to to the King as, as a matter of fact, all, all of her husband's uh, childhood, uh, where he went to school, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it was all in all it's all in an area, all in an environment. So yeah. you know. Hmm. Vine City is easy walking distance to uh, Morehouse College. Uh, easy, super mm-hmm. easy, super mm-hmm. easy. That's where a funeral was held at. Mm-hmm. Wow. Hey, I have, there are two other things I wanted to mention before we get off the call. Um, number one, my degree, it, reading all this makes the world feel really small. It makes me feel really silly for studying what I studied for my bachelor's. Because I feel like it's all part of this whole dance of being a, like, making a profession out of being, like, an activist or something like that. And that, like, my struggle for freedom and for justice on the planet is, like, something I got to go to school for. Um, like, it's, it's when it's, like, the way I understand how systems work, it will accommodate, like, a new thing. Um, it will make a new thing so that it doesn't break down. It will figure out how to make sure it stays functioning. And I feel like that that's what this is. It was like inevitable that these, this situation would kind of happen um, in terms of there being, you know, like the so-called emancipation and the reconstruction and you got to have, you know, the so-called talent intent, you know, that like all of this, you know, the system had to accommodate for it. And so we had to have some type of leaders or whatever and we had to have like all of this, some type of movement and the movement had to end, passing legislation, keep them moving, um, you know, all this kind of stuff to make sure that it kind of like, adjusted to incorporate the, the change. And so I feel kind of silly with my degree because I feel like that's just pointless. Um, that's one thing. And then the second thing is, like, I felt like, I don't know, I ha- sometimes I have to think about things a little bit longer, but she really said that her child, Bunny, has gone to college, received whatever degrees, and decided she wanted to be a, past- a preacher, pastor, whatever term she used. She gave her trial sermon. And they were so surprised that she sounded like Martin. And they said, well, did you ever let her hear any of the other recordings? And they were like, no. And I'm like, but wait a minute. This is someone who has gone to school. Like, you don't think that she's done her own research or heard or remembered? It's just, like, you're supposed to believe that he's somehow, like, watching. You know, I don't know if I'm coming across clearly. I felt like she's almost saying that a child was like a little silly or stupid or something like that in the sense that her child couldn't do her own research and beginning to develop her own preaching pattern or whatever, or trying to make it seem like this is so genetic or something like that. I, would, I, I wouldn't put it past Bunny. Bunny seemed real logical. There was a male caller who mentioned something about Bunny after Dr. King died. Bunny was the only one who was like, I'm not... I'm not dealing with people. The male caller mentioned that that seemed to be the logical response. She was the only one that actually had it. Bunny seems, you know, uh, like a little bit more privy. So I wouldn't put it past Bunny to have done her own research on her own father because she knew he was a preacher pastor. How many people went past her and was like, man, your daddy was real good. When he got on that pulpit, he moved millions of people. It's all recorded. It's not like they had the only recordings. I don't know why. I just wanted to mention that I felt like that was – Interesting of Miss King to say. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That makes logical sense, though. Like, uh, yeah, so it's not like you would uh, not have access, right, to 
getting those audio recordings to hear it from lots of folks. She went to institutions, schools, and what have you. So, I mean, she certainly would have had a lot of access to, to hear some of those recordings, recordings uh, of his speeches, sermons. Uh, any other uh, commentary folks want to get in? Last minute, folks satisfied? We'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Catch up on uh, news and notes from the past seven days. We'll be looking forward to it. Uh, was it? Did I miss somebody? Somebody have something they were going to share? Oh, right on. I'll assume folks uh, are satisfied. If folks have a suggestion for next book to read, you can drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, might be next week, be the last section. Uh, I have to double check at the audio, but I'll know uh, within a matter of minutes. Uh, I hope it was a constructive investment of folks uh, Friday evening. Uh, folks not enjoying the book as much happens sometimes. I still have learned uh, a good bit. And as I said, I, I still think uh, reading a book that I don't enjoy as much, I think is still better than watching Empire Scandal whatever other goodies they have uh, waiting for us on Netflix uh, that can just be watched anytime anyway. Uh, thanks again for the folks who tuned in. Again, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call-in, and we'll be here on Tuesday. Uh, Will Willimon, he is a white professor at Duke University. Uh, he just wrote the book, Who Lynched Willie Earl? Uh, that talks about a black male, Willie Earl, who was lynched not in uh, ancient history, uh, but in, uh, it was close to 1950, 1947, uh, was lynched by a group of whites who were upset. They felt he was taking business from their taxicab service, so they went and lynched him uh, in South Carolina. He wrote, uh, he just wrote a book, it just came out within the last month, uh, where he talks about the religion of white supremacy uh, and how white Christians aided and abetted uh, in killing Willie Earl again. Not ancient history. In 1947, that's the same year that Jackie Robinson integrated Major League Baseball, that people want to put things you know in context um but yeah he uh he just wrote this book he'll be on the program and in addition to this lynching case he also said that this book is about examining his own complicity and involvement in white supremacy and that's the term that he uses in the book white supremacy so we'll be looking forward to hearing from him on tuesday always a hoot to question white people uh with that again sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy White people are terrorizing black people all the time. Uh, us being intoxicated, whether it's uh, cigarettes, alcohol, cannabis, whatever else it is, none of those substances, poisons, are helping us to eliminate racism. And there's a lot of evidence that us being intoxicated has just made it easier for the Betty Shelbys and Darren Wilsons and Daniel, Daniel Holtzclaws of the world to terrorize and pillage black people. I think Dr. Welsing and a lot of the other folks that we say we have a lot of regard for, I think they would resolutely in one voice say, yes, let us let us take as much care of our brain computer as we can uh, so that we can be healthy, highly functioning black people with melanin and come up with concepts, strategies to permanently solve the problem. White people. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time 
we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Goodbye. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.